episode 45 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede, and I'm recording in New Orleans over Skype with Peter Moran. Hey, Brandon. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Peter is the co-host of the We Love to Watch podcast, which I listen to every week as soon as they're posted. Brandon is a very uh, apt listener, a very uh, regular listener, and we always appreciate that because uh, it's fun to bounce off whether or not we did a good job. Yeah, and it's been great to be on your show, too. I was on a Xanadu episode, and we did one of the Vincent Price The Fly, and they were both super fun to record. And you will be back again soon. Hell yeah. We're figuring out our early 2018 right now. And the thing we keep running into is that we cover a lot of the same material. Like, there's a lot of uh, (laughs) overlap in our interests, and sometimes we'll do an episode on something, like, close to each other without any kind of planning. There's this kind of, like, synchronicity there. It's so weird because these, uh, these, like, cult movies get resurrected from the grave, and, like, we'll bring them up regardless of when, if they're, like, getting an arrow restoration or regardless of, uh, you know, if something was on TCM. Like, it's always just, like, I thought of the movie and then Brandon also thought of the movie and then we'll happen to have a week where we're both talking about, like, the dentist or something. Yeah, and that's kind of why it's, like, so great to be able to just share stuff together for once, like, directly instead of just by happenstance. So, uh, just kind of off the bat, uh, what you usually do on the top of the episode is we ask each other what we've been watching lately. Um, is there any, like, movies you've seen recently that have kind of stuck out to you? So, the one that's sticking in my mind the most right now that's, like, for some reason won't just die is I finally saw Jennifer's Body. Oh, that's such a great film. I didn't really like it, but... (laughs) It's like getting this this weird momentum where even though I didn't like it and I found it really irritating at the time, in my mind, it's just like growing stronger. Like, I might love it by this time next year. I don't know. But like, do you get that, that, that thing? Obviously, all my complaints about it are pretty typical. The dialogue was annoying and like... Yeah, it's so overwritten, but in like a kind oh. of gleeful way. <laughs> yeah, and it's got a third act plot twist that's like not really necessary to what the movie is about. It, it does feel a little sanitized for even being a rated R movie. I think I latch on to like the glee in that movie, like just how much fun they're having with the material. And I don't know, a lot of like cheaper horror films like that don't really go for excess. It's got kind of a major studio slickness to it, so you don't expect how pulpy it gets and just how like kind of bonkers cartoonish energy goes into it. Uh, it is fun as a narrative movie where you're like Diablo Cody's career. Because, like, everybody loved Juno, and, like, Juno was, like, kind of this, like, sweet, almost twee movie that has, like, uh, you know, some a somewhat sour disposition towards high school, but never that negative. And then it goes to Jennifer's Body, which is, like, almost Heathers-level cynical. Yeah. <laughs> it hates high school, and it thinks everybody is a flake, and everybody is fake. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting movie because it's both highly cynical, but it's, like, having a great time with it. It reminds me of Heathers. I'm sure Diablo Cody would love to hear that, but 
it didn't quite reach those heights for me. Going back to what you were saying, though, I don't know if I really turn around on movies like that. I feel like what happens is I double down on stuff the more I have to defend it. I know. <laughs> like, okay, for Jennifer's Body, if someone says it's bad... I just have to come up with reasons why I disagree and like you sort of like dig your heels more and more because you basically talk yourself into thinking about the movie more and like more specific reasons why you like it sort of come to mind. So like I don't even know if I necessarily loved Jennifer's body on the first watch but like the more and more I talk about it and the more I like have to come up for defenses of like how ridiculous it is like the more it sticks out to me as something I really enjoyed. I don't know if part of it is like a mental sunk cost fallacy but I have that as well where I'm like... I, I, like, will have a cult movie, particularly these maligned cult movies. I say, if there's one thing that unites all of us, uh, you know, dissolvers out in the, the nomadic wastes of the web after the site went down, it's that we all love the idea that, like, a, a movie's reputation can be uh, repaired, and that we can take something back from ignominy, and, like, it's a very, Nathan, like, Nathan Rabin-esque idea, but, like, that's what united a lot of us is, like, the idea that, like, hey, actually, Cloud Atlas is amazing. <laughs> and then you have to fight these fights. You can name, like, any movie in that climate, and somebody is willing to defend it and build it up, and I like that positive energy, as opposed to, like, I don't know, something like the Reddit forums where it's more about tearing it down. Yeah, and that's what that's what uh, Aaron and I very on We Love to Watch. We very rarely do movies that we know we're gonna hate. We never have hate fests because like we just don't generally find glee in finding something we don't want to watch. Like I am always excited if I felt like I spent my two hours well. <laughs> I never want to. I never want to be like, oh yes, this is something I can trash. Like I just don't get that that mindset. Really, that's not me. And that's kind of why I love your show on a weekly basis is because. I don't know, it's hard to find genre film podcasts that aren't, you know, quote-unquote bad movie podcasts, where the whole idea is just sort of, like, mock the thing and, like, sort of tell jokes around the movie. Y'all definitely have, like, a humorous way to look at the films, but it's definitely from a pure appreciation standpoint and not, like, how can I mock this thing that we're watching this week? It's, like, how can I find a good time in it? Uh, which is why I like listening to your show so much. That is uh, some of the best praise we've ever gotten to the show. That's very, very sweet of you to say. And I would say that uh, what you see in our show, I see in yours, because one of the reasons I really love Swamp Flicks is that it, I feel like we're on a similar journey where, like, uh, the idea of giving everything a chance, even if it's, you know, if it's trash, if it's well accepted, like, everything gets a second chance, uh, whether or not, it, it, you know, the public consciousness would think it deserves it is a big thing. And so that was another reason I wanted to return to Jennifer's Body. I was like, a lot of people hate this movie but the right people love it <laughs> so it's like I, I knew you liked it and i was like I, i'll have to return to it so yeah who knows by this time next year jennifer's body might be like a movie i adore when i rewatch it but right now i'm just like <sighs> why do they talk like that <laughs> yeah there's kind of like a joss whedon like quippy thing about it which i guess diablo cody usually does but in that movie i could see it getting like if you're on the wrong side of it it will only get worse as it goes along. There's people that, like, say, that's how teens actually talk. And I'm like, I'm not that detached. I'm 26. I'm not that far away from being a teenager. <laughs> and we found we found a lot of the shit annoying, like, I don't know, seven years ago also. like I think if I return to it, it'll be in, like, a Karen Kusama kind of, like, retrospective. Like, I'd like to see yes. how that fits in her general vibe, especially when it comes to her approach to horror films. 
because it does feel like an outlier against stuff like The Invitation, which is a lot calmer, or her segment in XX, which definitely doesn't have that joke a minute vibe either. It is so glossy compared to her normal stuff. Like, uh, Girl Fight, uh, is that the Michelle Rodriguez movie? Yeah, I actually haven't seen that, but I really should. Girl Fight is, is a little grungier. The Invitation is much more uh, stripped down, much more of a, um, a uh, you know, an post-2010 indie horror movie. Um, very, like, reserved-looking in terms of its color palette and stuff like that. Jennifer's body is something that, yeah, I think would be an interesting return to because that's basically someone being like you and one of the most promising scriptwriters in Hollywood right now, the most talked about scriptwriters in Hollywood are going to get to do your big glossy horror movie and you get to have blood and tits and, you know, uh, one of the hottest stars like getting to, you know, sort of uh, counteract her own image or subvert her own image or at least try to. Uh, it sounds like a really pleasing property, but like it also kind of didn't work out for her or Diablo Cody. Yeah, I'm sure it came with uh, studio notes more so than the invitation as well. Like, it, I'm sure she had to answer to a lot of people the way she doesn't have to uh, when she works with smaller budgets. Nope. <laughs> Anything else uh, besides Jennifer's body recently that you've seen? Yes, uh, I've got a couple. Um, so I I don't want to talk about anything we talk about on We Love to Watch because that's fucking boring. Um, <laughs> first thing we'll get, it's own hour and a half on We Love to Watch. So the other stuff that I've been watching is I've been watching more Christmas movies. And I watched uh, two movies in, in rapid succession. I watched the Ron Howard of the Grinch with Jim Carrey. And then I watched Jim and Andy, the documentary on Netflix about uh, Jim Carrey uh, imitating Andy Kaufman and his like behind the set diaries of him trying to get into Andy Kaufman as a character. Yeah, I'm fascinated about that one. I want to see that so bad. It is uh, one of those documentaries that you watch and no matter where you fall on the end of it, you're like, I kind of think Jim Carrey is like both smarter than he was before and more of an asshole. <laughs> like it adds shades of color to Jim Carrey, but I don't know if in the end of the day it's shades of color that necessarily will help him as a public figure. But I don't know if that fucking matters because his goal was to inhabit Andy Kaufman, who didn't really care if everybody loved him. So it kind of it kind of is appropriate, like the idea that like Jim Carrey was doing something that is like, you know, the, he thought the right people would get in this, like, sort of public performance thing. And then Andy Kaufman was doing the same thing, but just very, very public, like, on SNL and in wrestling rings and shit. Yeah, I think you probably saw the worst side of Jim Carrey in both of those titles. Like, the worst thing about him is when he doesn't have, like, a babysitter, like, when he's allowed to just do whatever he wants. Uh, and I, those are both very self-indulgent projects. Like, for him to be able to be a method actor who's always in character as someone who's already an asshole... I mean, sure, Andy Kaufman is, he's super funny, but I'm sure he's not the best person to be around as, like, a intimate friend, you know? No. Especially, like, with the wrestling stuff, where he just, like, doesn't break character and says all this, like, misogynistic stuff because he's playing a heel. That probably gets old when the cameras are off, and I'm oh sure that extends to Jim Carrey as well. And then, in The Grinch, that is him without someone wrangling, like, his worst impulses, where he's doing that, like, coked-out uh, Robin Williams thing where... Everything's speeding a mile a minute, and it's just, like, so over the top and, like, hard to digest. I'm gonna say something controversial about the Grinch movie. Jim Carrey and a few of the songs are the only thing that has aged well about that movie. The set design, the character design, the general aesthetic of that movie is maybe the most aggressively ugly thing I've ever seen in my entire life. The Grinch Baby is a horror show. The Grinch Baby is something that, like, anytime you bring it up, I just start, like... (laughs) It's working right now. <laughs> it's the ugliest. It's the ugliest thing, and I don't know what they were doing. And 
but it feels intentional because like the Grinch is supposed to be this like horrible, gross, ghastly figure, and then he's supposed to become charming in the end, which I think works because of an audience's general affinity to Jim Carrey. The Grinch is like weirdly a cult movie among millennials. Like people love that movie as much as people hate it. And I'm just so mixed on it because like I think Jim Carrey's really funny in it. I think he's one of the better parts of the movie. I think the way he nails line readings and the way he animates himself to become sort of like, this is the wrong word, but like post-human. Like he's like <laughs> trying to become such a, not a rubber face, a rubber everything. Like a rubber Johnny. Yeah, I mean, he's playing a like live action cartoon character. So I guess it does require that energy. But I just feel so exhausted watching his performances in that style. Oh. Like when I was a kid, I would have loved to watch Ace Ventura over and over and over again. But I don't think I can make it 10 minutes through it now because it just like wears me out. And the, and the transphobia in Ace Ventura. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that too. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, I think the, the Grinch movie is a very interesting thing because, like, yeah, I'm, it's obviously very uh, subjective whether or not you think somebody is funny. I think Jim Carrey's constant energy is, like, really befitting of that character. But, like, it's so telling how hideous that movie is and hard to look at. And yet I continue to watch it every year. There's something drawing me to this movie. It's funny because, like, the only sign, the only chink in the armor, not even chink in the armor, the only Achilles heel of the movie is, like, that... They seem they do, they seem completely into the. Con- I love how committed they are to how ugly the aesthetic is. It is a hundred percent just like crossing the Rhine. We are just a point of no return. Just keep pumping forward with this like hideous candy cane live. At- There's so many sets they built for this movie. Hard plastic polymer sets and cars and shit that actually work and run on tracks that like this wasn't a half a half measure kind of thing this is a full measure thing there's something weirdly charming about how hideous it is and committed yeah if that was done this year it would be like almost entirely green screened i would assume yes because of cost i do there are scenes where like they're in their house and i'm like so a set designer had to go and design a blender that looked hooey and it is in the corner background of a shot for <laughs> a quarter second while Jim Carrey is stealing a Christmas tree or something. It's kind of magical in the sense like people are so committed to it. Because I hate half-committed atrocities. <laughs> half-committed cinematic atrocities. Real-life atrocities, I would prefer them to be half-committed. <laughs> Maybe not committed at all. But cinematic atrocities, I want them to be fully committed. Is that a Robert Zemeckis film, too? Uh, Ron Howard. Ron Howard, okay. Yeah, that's got to be one of the, like, the stranger Ron Howard properties like usually his movies are pretty forgettable i i don't enjoy that movie but it's definitely not forgettable that's the kind of thing that cinches itself into your mind (laughs) that's that's it every year i think about it like well i gotta watch that weird thing they gave robin ron howard a ton of money for and then they uh my last note on it kind of the movie the only sign that they know that the movie is like the aesthetic is hideous is because the lead uh character that's not the grinch is Cindy Lou Who. They don't give Cindy Lou Who that hideous, awful, upturned mouse nose thing. <laughs> but everyone else gets it? Everyone else gets it. They give her just a normal nose with some Hollywood makeup to make her cheeks look rosy and stuff. And like, <laughs> that's the only side of the armor. They're like, well, Cindy Lou Who has to look cute. We can't we can't have Cindy Lou Who with this like freak of, freak of nature on their face. And everyone's like, what freak of nature? Nothing, nothing. Uh, so she's just not going to have the nose? She's just not going to have the nose. <laughs> we don't want to look at the hideous <laughs> thing we created the whole time. We have to, like, brush that aside. <laughs> it's like how it's like how uh, Dr. Moreau doesn't, like, live in the jungle. He lives in a house up at the top of the hill, right? <laughs> 
recently, I didn't see anything like seasonally uh, appropriate like that. But I did watch something that's kind of a mess in the same way. I dug into this Roger Corman production called Bloodbath from 1966. This is one of Corman's like scrapping together pieces of like thrown away movies into this incoherent mess where everything's sort of like clobbered together out of like basically bits of trash. It's like every one of those tactics he usually uses all at the same time in one film. And it actually reaches this sort of like blissful insanity in the mess of it. It started as this Yugoslavian spy thriller that he made. It's called like Operation Titan or something like that. (laughs) Uh, So he co-produced that with the intention of re-releasing it in America. Um, And, you know, he would usually like re-edit them with different dialogue and stuff. So for the American cut, he hired Jack Hill, who is one of his regular like kind of schlocky directors. And Jack Hill turned this Yugoslavian noir film into a bucket of blood ripoff. So, like, Corman sometimes rips off his own movies, or he'll rip off movies that already ripped him off. Like, I don't know, Piranha is a knockoff of Jaws, which is already knocking off Corman properties. You know, he'll, like, cannibalize in that way. In this one, Jack Hill is ripping off Bucket of Blood, which is the Dick Miller, you know, beatnik comedy about, like, a killer sculptor. Uh, so, you start with the Yugoslavian thriller, then you add those scenes, and Corman hated Jack Hill's cut, so he hired Stephanie Rothman to finish the picture... And she added a whole other plot about this, like, shape-shifting vampire. (laughs) So this vampire is in with the beatniks. He's, like, doing better than them, like, professionally. People are actually buying his art. And whenever he hits on women, he turns into a vampire if they ever show any interest back. So he'll, like, be infatuated with women, and as soon as they make a move to actually consummate that flirtation, he shapeshifts into the villain from the Yugoslavian movie. And Rothman has kind of a surrealist eye. She did this movie, The Velvet Vampire, I kind of liked, that had a uh, all these like weird dream sequences in the desert, and they're like vaguely erotic in this weird way. And she brings that here too. There's like these underwater vampire bites. She relies a lot more heavily on the noir, like kind of third man ripoffs from the original Yugoslavian movie. So there's like foot chases down these like shadowy alleys and stuff. And the movie, because it has all these three different influences, ends up just becoming overstuffed in this really blissful way, and it's only, like, 60 minutes long. So if you're at all interested in, like, the weirdo Corman production style that's really just slapping together all different kinds of movies, I want more people to watch Bloodbath. Uh, it's, it's very strange. You say 60 minutes. That is the most appealing aspect of everything you said, and I love Dick Miller. Yeah, unfortunately, Dick Miller isn't in this one. He's not in this one? No, he's in Bucket of Blood, which this one is shamelessly ripping off. So it's like Corman ripping off his own movie. Oh, it's just ripping it off. I I thought you were saying that it actually took sections from Bucket (laughs) of Blood. I wouldn't put it passive. It would make sense. I I wasn't sure if you were saying that it took, uh, it not only ripped it off, but it specifically stole uh, segments of the movie, which is like a whole other level of ripping off. Just the editing challenge of trying to cut two movies that were shot by different people together is really appealing to me. I just watched Night Train to Terror in Spooktober this year. I don't even know that one. It's three movies cut into an anthology movie uh, where all three movies were chopped down to like 40 minute sections. (laughs) And then there's God (laughs) and the devil are on a train telling each other stories. uh, And the stories are the three movies. But like, I love the idea of just taking like, 
this thing that no one maybe will see and taking the, the parts of it that you actually liked and then just reappropriating it to to your yourself because like we've got so many this is something that is, is specific to old movies i think because like movies used to be so disposable yeah you didn't have the home video market this one specifically he wanted to sell the television and he ended up having to send ended up having to add another like six to ten minutes of like bikini girls dancing to fill out the <laughs> runtime so that it was long enough for a television broadcast. He wanted he turned in something at fifty minutes. <laughs> I think the idea was like, oh, this will show on a quick double bill at like the drive-in for a bit, and then I can sell it for TV broadcasts. But yeah, no one's gonna watch this over and over and over again. You either catch it at midnight with like one of those Elvira style introductions, or you uh, see it in the theater and forget it because that was one of two movies you watched that night. See, like, and there's there's the, the flip side to this movie would be I watched some terrible Dean Kane movie uh, on late night and HBO or something uh, when I was in junior high, and I was like, this is terrible, it's terrible, whatever, and then uh, some guys invade a building and then cops show up to the building. And then from they find a minigun, and then they start shooting from the second floor of the minigun. Does that sound like any movies you've seen before? Because it's uh, they just use footage from Terminator Two. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know how they got away with that. I don't know what was going on there. But they just use footage of Arnie standing on a second floor of an office building shooting at cops with a minigun. And it's it, that's the flip side where it's kind of offensive to me because I like recognized it and I was like, this isn't the movie anymore. Now I'm watching a better movie. What's going on? <laughs> it reminds me of uh, this MacGyver episode I watched because I was going through this kick where I was trying to find every piece of media with killer ants in it. <laughs> it's a noble quest. Uh, there's more than you would expect. But the MacGyver episode, they literally just cut up the same clips of these killer ants from this Charlton Heston movie from the 50s and gave that same episode the exact plot. Uh, it's this movie, The Naked Jungle. So it was just like, I just watched this. Why am I watching it again, but with MacGyver <laughs> interspersed in? Yeah, the idea of taking like a really cool monster in a movie no one would see otherwise because it's like a Yugoslavian movie. Uh, I don't know, 50 years before Criterion, 40 years before Criterion was a thing. And uh, just taking a cool monster and putting it in makes sense, because you're like, otherwise people would never see these three seconds. But the idea of just taking a movie and being like, it's just like that movie, but with our stuff in it, it's like, <laughs> no, 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 but we like that movie. That's why you're using it as a reference point, because we all like the movie. But yeah, the, uh, the, the, the idea is very interesting to me, but it is something that I see as ethically and uh, artistically something of the past. Yeah, Corman's definitely an old-fashioned, I have to scrap together a movie over the next seven days to sell it by a deadline to make whatever circuit run it's supposed to do. Like, Well, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think like Suicide Squad and Justice League's kind of scraped together from three different creative forces is that different from this. Um, <laughs> like, uh, I think Justice League had two different directors and were scrapped together from two entirely different cuts. But there's something perverse about every version of bloodbath having a completely different plot like the there's this noir film that i don't even understand what the plot is because they only use the foot chases from it and then there's this wacky comedy about beatniks who are like pretentious and are trying to reinvent the medium of paint on canvas and then there's this third plot about this like rapist vampire who can't handle his madonna whore complex and becomes 
transforms into a completely different actor every time he becomes aroused. <laughs> There's just something really weird about smashing all those together within 60 minutes uh, that I find really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, that would be like, uh, who's like a really handsome blonde person? That'd be like if Army Hammer... When he's like, he gets aroused, he like turns into me, like, like the the, mon- the monster version of himself, like Reverse Hulk. You like shrinks yeah. down. <laughs> he's like walking around, putting on a good show, looking beautiful and handsome, and then all of a sudden it's like schlubify. <laughs> well, I, I do want to bring up one more movie. It was something I missed at New Orleans Film Fest this year, and it's also very short. Uh, it's 40 minutes long, and it's titled Snowy Bing Bong Across the North Star Combat Zone. <laughs> I assumed it was going to be like an interpretive dance piece. If you look at the stills from it, most of them are going to be in this like sort of photo shoot tableau of these uh, three dancers in this snowy winterscape, but it's very jokey. Like The snow looks like cotton candy, and they're on some kind of alien planet holding beach balls. And they're wearing these, like, bearskin rugs that are one-piece swimming suits. And when they turn around, there's nothing on the back, just sort of the jockstrap straps holding the bearskin front on. But what I didn't realize is that it's actually a sketch comedy review. So these interpretive dance uh, sequences are basically, like, loose glue holding together these individual sketches where the three dancers will go off into these weird tangents where they're like applying for acting jobs or getting hit on by like weird old men and it's a really fun quick little movie that's available to watch on topic.com all of a sudden even though i just missed it at this festival like in october i guess it's too short to get like a proper release as a feature yeah they would have to like pair it up with something it's really hard for short films or even shorter films to get um a proper release like wide release uh that's why i'm really excited by a lot of these streaming sites because the idea that that they're like uh like even shutter has a short film section i I just like the idea that that these movies can actually get in front of an audience because otherwise like your choice is to drown on youtube with all the other content or vimeo a lot of shorts go to die on vimeo and like you can't really make money off of it you can't really get any sort of curated distribution i mean i guess you can get like some you know content king to like send the video around but you're not getting the sort of thrills and chills that like a you know a 90 minute movie would uh get from criterion where like oh what's gonna happen with my movie it's gonna it's gonna get in front of audiences and people are gonna be talking about it for years because it's a criterion movie like that sort of stuff doesn't happen with short films as much unless they're all paired together yeah and i I do like when they pair them with a feature though like at festivals specifically there's always like a couple features you'll go see that'll have like a five to ten minute short attached on the front and it's a good little like palate cleanser sort of like getting you in the mood of watching a movie sometimes it'll even outshine the feature in some way this one was paired with that uh great choice red lobster commercial horror film that's been making the rounds (laughs) have you heard of that Mm-hmm. I've not seen it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, I wanted to see that so much, and I, I was bummed that I missed Snowy Bing Bongs uh, because of like a schedule conflict. So it's cool that that one's online uh, to consume, but yeah, I kind of wish I had seen it on the big screen with the, that great choice pairing. I, I do like the idea of going to the theater to see like a very quick double feature, where you get like a good like four to ten minute short, and then you get like a ninety minute feature. You said palate cleanser. When I went to, so in, uh, I live in San Diego now, but I lived in Chicago. 10 months ago for years and years and years i lived in chicago and i used to go to this music box of horrors all the time this 24-hour uh horror festival at the music box 
I recommend it to anybody. Uh, if you're looking for an excuse to go to Chicago, come in a few days before, go to the fancy restaurants or whatever, go see the fun bars at night, and then do the music box of horrors because it is so fun. The community is amazing. And the secret to it, I think, well, one, they started serving booze a couple years ago. So that's <laughs> one secret. The other secret is that they have shorts in between some of the like the longer chunks. So they'll have two movies back to back and then they'll have a couple shorts to chop something up. And they'll be like goofy handheld stuff and then they'll be really well put together stuff or like a silent short. And I do love the idea of pairing them up as this sort of palate cleanser. You can see like a story done in uh, abstract or a story done very minimally. Uh, and uh, then you just get to enjoy the full feature. I love that idea. Yeah, you don't have to immediately jump into another huge story right after that. The way you're describing those horror screenings reminds me of like a film fest environment, which is kind of cool to just see on the regular at like a repertory theater. And this episode, we're actually going to be recapping everything Cece and I saw at New Orleans Film Fest this year in October. Uh, it took me literally until this past week, so it took me a full two months to actually review and post reviews of everything we saw at the festival. And then Cece and I kind of just sat down and talked over everything we saw together. So this is going to be a longer episode than usual. Uh, not only because, <laughs> you know, we're going to be talking about 15 movies we saw over the course of a week, but also before we even get into that, you and I are going to be discussing one of my favorite films of all time. I suspect this one's going to go a little longer than our usual run times, so uh, just sort of buckle in and get ready for the ride. And all that's coming <laughs> up to you right now. Then you're crazy. I know you are, but what am I? You're a nerd. I know you are, but what am I? You're an idiot. I know you are, but what am I? 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 Infinity. No, I'm not. You are. No way. Knock it off. Cut it out. Oh, shut, shut up, up. Pee-wee. Why don't you make me? Why don't you make me? Because I don't make monkeys. I just train them. Oh, Pee-wee, listen to reason. Oh, come on. I'm listening to reason. Pee-wee. And now it's time for our regular Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. Uh, and since Peter is on, I wanted to take an opportunity to introduce him to a movie I was surprised he hadn't seen yet. Because Peter also co-hosts a podcast called Hey Vern, It's a Podcast, which uh, runs down the films of Ernest. Um, I've been enjoying the show so far, but it, one weird roadblock that keeps popping up is that your co-host Marcus Jones keeps bringing up Pee Wee Herman as a reference point for what Ernest does in his movies and on his TV show, which y'all pair individual episodes of the show with individual movies like uh, Ernest Goes to Jail and Ernest Scares Stupid and so on. And I was just surprised that you hadn't really been introduced to Pee Wee Herman as a character before. Because, yeah, to do a whole podcast on Ernest, it just seemed just surprising that you hadn't touched on probably the thing that I think people would not necessarily accuse him of being a ripoff of, but in that same, like, eccentric man-child kind of area, you know? Yep, the it's it's a sort of competitor, a rival, if you will. Um, I think they also appealed to different audiences, but yeah, our Ernest cast, Hey Vern, it's a podcast, uh, is an interesting thing for me because I didn't grow up with a lot of the standards of children's television. I was the youngest of four kids. So like, I got a lot of adult television and adult movies pushed on me before, well, I guess not adult movies, but <laughs> I got a lot of, uh, 
PG-13 and up movies pushed on me before uh, I was, you know, had reached uh, teenage years or adolescence, as opposed to, I, I just don't, I'm not versed in a lot of, of kids' media because, like, everybody was, old, all my oldest older siblings were too old to push it on me. And I won't, Pee-wee is one thing that, like, completely completely went over my head. I saw one or two Ernest movies as a kid that I don't really remember. So this is like weirdly me catching up with my childhood and you're, you <laughs> challenging me to actually watch this movie is good. I think it's going to make Haver a better show as a result too. Yeah, it's, it's good context. I mean, when I grew up in the like mid eighties to early nineties in the South. So Ernest and Pee Wee were kind of inescapable just as like cultural phenomenons at the time. But I did have these tapes at the daycare I was at that we would watch on repeat because they were like filmed off HBO or taped off HBO, and those were the movies we had. So if you wanted to watch something on demand, it had to be on these, like, stacks of VHS tapes. Uh, And I grew up with a lot of, like, weird introductions to horror that, like, aren't necessarily for kids, but, like, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead and Killer Clowns from Outer Space, uh, The Monster Squad and The Worst Witch were, like, sort of things I would watch year-round, even though they're kind of like Halloween fair. And oddly... Pee-wee's Big Adventure was a really big staple within that collection, and I think that Pee-wee's Big Adventure, not only because it's the debut film of Tim Burton, uh, just in general, it has kind of like an introduction to horror as a genre built within it. The movie has a very simple plot about this eccentric man-child, a character birthed by Paul Rubens in The Groundlings, when he was there at the same time as Elvira, too. So I guess they were kind of in that same, like, over-exaggerated caricature of kind of a cartoon-level personality. In Pee-wee's Big Adventure, you see that persona graduate from adult shows that are like these sort of comedy bits to this feature-length kids movie. But some of those adult themes sort of stick around in the film. The entire plot is Pee-wee's bike is stolen by his nemesis, Francis, who is a rich kid. Uh, and by kid, he's in his, like, 30s, but both of them play probably half their age, at least, <laughs> if not a third of their age. And he goes on this quest across America to retrieve his bike, and he goes on all these false leads and travels across Texas and California trying to find his stolen bicycle, which really is a beautiful object and is worth traveling across the country for. But the plot structure of the film is basically an excuse for all of these eccentric tangents, Uh, And he just meets all these different characters, you know, like bikers and just like general weirdos and waitresses. Uh, It's actually kind of like a weird class film in that way. And within that structure, there's a lot of weird horror moments. There's these dream sequences with these like clown doctors who like work on his bike and tear it apart and laugh in his face. Or there's a uh, old-fashioned ghost story involving a trucker built in there as well. So this movie used to scare the shit out of me as a kid. And I would still be weirdly fascinated with it and watch it over and over and over again. Because I guess that is the kind of thing that sticks with you as a kid. Is being terrified of something and it being this, like, over-the-top in that way. So I just kind of want to ask you off the bat, watching this as an adult for the first time, what did you think of Pee-wee's Big Adventure? Uh, I adored it. Uh, it was one of my favorite movies I've seen this year as a, uh, you know, new watch. It, it uh, is something that it made me feel a little bad that I hadn't gotten to earlier, but, like, something pushed me away from it, and that's, like, the idea that, like, part of me is, like, sometimes children's movies are, most of the time children's movies are made for children. And, like, I don't want to get in with this, like, cynical attitude of, like, 
this movie doesn't fit my rigorous standards for what a film should be for an adult, but, like, this movie fits every standard for what I think a film should be, and it's incredibly funny as its own thing. It's plotted really, really well, so much so that it's the pacing just kind of keeps moving and moving, and then when characters return, you're, like, excited to see old friends, as opposed to, like, oh, I guess we have to deal with the waitress again, I guess we have to deal with the ex-convict again. (laughs) Instead, you're like, oh, my old buddies. I totally get what you're saying with the horror moments, because as a kid, I used to just, like, watch creepy movies that I was allowed to watch over and over again, like, re-exposing myself to the trauma, even though they scared me. Uh, and it is funny, I do like when whenever a kid's movie can have, like, little moments of terror in there, because, like, childhood horror is one of the most sacred things, I think. <laughs> like, when you're a kid, you should be allowed to have safe scares. Not scared that a guy is going to abduct you from your, your on your walk home, but, like, a scare that, like, if you say Bloody Mary in the mirror three times, you're going to be abducted by a ghost, which is safe because it will never happen. <laughs> but that's that's one of the reasons I loved it. It kind of balanced everything. It's, it's funny, it's whimsical, but it's not too cloyingly cute or cloyingly childish. One thing that does separate Ernest from Pee-wee... Ernest has no fucking clue what's going on. Even when he's winning the movie and he's saving the day, Ernest has no idea what's going on. Pee-wee's kind of self-aware. Like, Pee-wee will look at other people like they're the weirdos. And he's entirely selfish. Like, he's on this single-minded mission to retrieve his bike, and he'll kind of sell people out on his, like, way to go <laughs> achieve that goal. The scene where he's he's gathered all the townsfolk, all these, like, sort of, like, iconographic sort of uh, personality types and stereotypical personality types into a room, and he's, like, going through the details, and then eventually it becomes him, like, paranoid, accusing everybody in the room of having played a role in his bike getting stolen, is <laughs> so maniacally funny. Getting to see Pee-wee have a breakdown where I was like, oh, wait, there's more shades to this character. I just thought it was a guy like, ha-ha. <laughs> I do like that his like mind is just always at a thousand in that way. Like He's always got his foot mashed on the pedal. It's He doesn't do anything halfway, which includes like, in that scene, accusing every single person and in being involved in the bike missing, he deflects any sexual advances from Dottie, who is like his closest friend, but also somebody who wants to see him romantically, and he is a completely asexual person. What a tragedy for the film, whenever Ernest just keeps, or whenever Ernest, whenever Pee-wee just keeps <laughs> turning Dottie down, and Dottie just, she just wants, she just wants him to go to a movie with her. Go in the movie, Ernest. <laughs> Pee-wee, whatever your name is. They're so different. I'm sorry. They are very different, but I, I, I see uh, I see why that keeps coming up when you do your show. Like, I could see why those two personalities are, like, very convenient comparison points. But yeah, when he, like, wakes up in the morning, just him making breakfast is, like, the most intense routine possible. He's got this, like, Rube Goldberg's house set up with all these different pieces that have to all fall into place just to make eggs and toast. And he yells at his breakfast before he eats it. He just goes, ah! Um, <laughs> like, there's nothing calm in this man's life. He, he wakes up speeding at a thousand percent. Yeah. Because of that energy, he can make any simple task, like, the funniest thing to me. I still cry laughing watching this movie. It is, uh, it was so maniacally fun. It doesn't have this sort of 
alienation that you feel sometimes when you're watching a kid's movie that clearly would, you know, entice a child, but, like, for an adult, there is nothing. Like, I've watched uh, Mickey's Playhouse with my nieces, and this is, it's the most hideous post-CGI getting cheaper cartoon ever, because it's just, like, the same animations week to week, except for this week, Mickey's wearing a pirate hat or whatever. The show is clearly intended for, like, children under five. And so watching as an adult, you're like, you feel like alienated and started like tired and depressed. But then with Pee-wee, you're like, wait, this is for everybody. As long as you don't have like, you're not entirely made of cynicism. You're not some pillar of meanness. And, uh, you know, the world hasn't totally soured you. Pee-wee should have something for you. Yeah. And I think that probably has to do with him starting as a character at the Groundlings. I'm sure it was super weird to see, like, an adult-themed show that was, like, perverse with this, like, man-child at the center of it, but it's not that much of a stretch for him to play it straight, but there's still, like, weird moments where, like, an ex-convict will, like, hit on him, or the devils and evil clowns fitting in. Like, that stuff's not necessarily aimed at children, but it's in the same way that most Tim Burton movies are. Like, kind of like Beetlejuice. Like, Beetlejuice is a grotesque character for adults, but even as a kid, you latch onto his anarchic Bugs Bunny-type spirit, and it's not that much of a stretch to see how Beetlejuice was then reworked into, like, a children's animated show, uh, even though, like, the sort of, like, gross sexual aspects of Beetlejuice are sort of forgotten in that transformation. I mean, Beetlejuice was one of my favorite movies as a kid. Uh, I, yeah. It was one of those tapes that I basically, like, bleached from having watched so much. Uh, getting to rewatch it on Blu-ray uh, was a, a wonder because for the last time I watched it was on this like shitty VHS when I was a kid and it was just like pale and awful looking uh, and I totally see what you're doing where it's like Beetlejuice is kind of this like perverted demon just like this like lust demon that moves from place to place but like somehow the way michael keaton sort of humanizes him makes it make sense it's like oh yeah i can see why this this would become a childhood a childish thing but like with Wee's big adventure i'm like oh this just feels like it's a good character that just happens to not have a filthy mouth <laughs> and, and his world isn't filthy and when they translate that to television for the cartoon show like him and Lydia become friends instead of, like, him trying to, like, trap Lydia in some, like, weird uh, child bride marriage. Uh, <laughs> which it only takes a couple details to skew to make it, like, appropriate for children, but it's still weird that made that leap in the first place. Yeah, and I just watched uh, Elf for my annual watch, and it is uh, very interesting to see that sort of, like, that model come back again and again, which, I, you know, Elf wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Pee-wee and, and these these other man-children uh, types coming at back. These, these guys who are somehow uh, fish-out-of-water adults with very specific ideas, and then watching them navigate the abuse of the adult world is, like, kind of part of the joke. <laughs> Though with Pee-wee, part of the fun, separating, you know... Ernest is more close to Elf in that sense, because Ernest is the goofball, in a, and the rest of the world is his straight man. Except for, you know, a couple small side characters. With, uh, with Pee-wee, the whole world is goofy and strange in, in a way that is compatible with him. Yeah, like, his house is sort of this immaculate collection of kitsch, and it's just very beautiful to see all of these, like, things that are obviously obsessions for Paul Rubin as a person sort of collected in this one space where it becomes sort of the, like, this other world. Like, he's created this, like, 
small environment that's completely separate from reality where like Christmas and Halloween are both year round. Like the decorations sort of coexist and all these different like fifties novelty items are sort of strewn about and create this nostalgic time frame for his environment. But also, like I said earlier, I feel like there's a class element in play as well. Like if you go to his nemesis's house, the, the guy who arranges to have his bike stolen, Francis, he lives in this like really tacky McMansion with this giant swimming pool sized bathtub. And that contrast between that world where everything looks new and kind of like grotesquely nice versus like the uh, convicts and bikers and waitresses and truckers that Pee Wee hangs out with. There's like setting up a, like a really strong dichotomy there between those two worlds that is really easy to latch onto in like kind of a punching up way. Like Francis is so gross where everything Pee Wee and his friends touch are so wonderful, even though they're the ones that usually get the short end of the stick. Yeah, and I think um, I think for sure Francis is a uh, fascinating character to talk about because he is, from the top, a very funny character, and he sort of subverts typical bully archetypes for me, um, because Francis is not a typical bully. He doesn't just, like, come in and just, like, push Pee-wee down and take his bike. He, like, tries to use his influence to, like, get to Pee-wee. Yeah, he pays someone to steal it. Yeah, yeah. He kind of, like, does these, like, conniving systems where he, like, hires a guy to do it, and then when the the guy gets the bike, then he hires the guy to to chop up the bike and get rid of it. Like, it's a a whole thing. And then at the end of the movie, he, like, expects Pee-wee to, like, thank him for setting him off on the adventure. Francis is just, like, a really, really funny character for how disgusting he is. Yeah, and that ending is pretty crazy. Like you said, it's strangely satisfying to see all these characters gathered around again at this drive-in movie theater where you watch the fake version of Pee-wee's Big Adventure on the screen. It's kind of mutated into this like 007 traditional action movie because we only know these characters from brief anecdotes. And even Francis as the villain, we only have maybe two or three major interactions with him, and the most of the movie is PB on these like anecdotal conflicts, uh, overcoming individual obstacles on his path to getting his bike back. And what kind of amazes me about this movie and about Beetlejuice as well, when you rewatch them as an adult, is how short they are. I guess when you're like a child, your imagination can kind of sink into individual scenes and environments a little longer. But when I watch this movie, it just amazes me how much quality content you can pack into 90 minutes. Uh, and I don't know if it's just the an- anecdotal format of that, but I cannot believe this movie is only nine minutes long and everything comes at you very rapidly, where I feel like as a kid, those scenes felt very longer and more like stretched out and detailed than they actually are. Uh, did, did it kind of like affect you at all at how quickly the movie moves? Uh, yeah, it's paced wonderfully. The fact that it's such a singular quest and nothing feels really like a, even though there are detours, nothing feels like a slow detour that would, you know, drag the movie down. None of that actually feels like that. It all feels like it's just part of the journey. It's part of the story, which is uh, really lovely for what the movie is. Because that's the worst part about kids movies is when they're just bogged down for 40 minutes in the middle. 
Like, um, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie we rewatched for the show this year. And the one thing that dawned on me is there is, like, a full 30 minutes in the middle where you're like, so do we have to just go to, like, an old shitty house to, to like, hang out for a little bit? Couldn't we, like, be fighting ninjas in this time? And you're like, oh, budgets. But this doesn't feel like it's, it's held back by anything. It's just pure id. And it very much embodies who Pee-wee is as a character. It never stops moving. And it's got a scrappy budget, like... The dream sequences are set on these like sort of soundstage voids where it's just the the clowns doctoring on the bicycle or there's like these stop motion animated dinosaurs, but they're done very cheaply. It's a very packed movie, but it's putting together these sort of like scrappy filmmaking means in a way I guess Tim Burton does in general. I guess the more budget he gets, the less innovative it is, but uh, it just feels like Going back to look at it now, it's funny to me how scrappy and, like, how cheap the production is for how much effect they're able to wring out of it. Yeah, and it's, uh, it being a Tim Burton movie makes a lot of sense because there's, uh, especially in this era, the fun thing about Tim Burton is he seems to be able to make all of these weird tones and uh, aesthetics gel together really well, even though Pee-wee starts the movie in this, like, candy kitsch world and then he trans like you were saying he transitions into this like working world with drivers and dive dives and and, uh all these like uh you know escaped convicts and stuff like that like the more real world and yet the real world still feels uh magical to him there's a wonderful shot of him having a heart-to-heart with the waitress who uh, it, but it's inside a giant dinosaur head, and you like are looking out through the teeth. Yeah, and that's um, actually the penguin's parents from uh, Batman Returns at the beginning. It's Pee Wee and the waitress in this movie. <laughs> it is. That's a good call. I, she looked familiar to me because I've seen Batman Returns. I've seen probably every Tim Burton movie except for this one. <laughs> I need to think about that because I, I just realizing that now because I've seen Batman Returns tons of times, and it just clicked now. Wow. Yeah, that's one of my go-to Christmas watches, personally, is that movie. Um, Aaron Aaron just pushed it on me. Aaron Armstrong, my co-host, uh, just pushed it on me as a Christmas movie. And I was like, no, it's not. It just has snow in it. But I have to rewatch this to now, because you both are, are saying that. Well, okay, a couple more questions before we go out. Uh, this movie does have a lot of, like, touchstones. It, like, introduced a lot of concepts to me. Like, I don't know, there's a Godzilla scene as they're going through the, stu- the movie studio lot... They go through a bunch of different movie movie sets. So there's like a Godzilla cameo. There's the dinosaurs come up in a couple different ways. There's almost like a Haxan type scene where like there's these devils around this giant cauldron. <laughs> and then there's this self-contained like large Marge ghost story that's basically like a very short film within this like larger context. Uh, is there any like one anecdotal tangent that sort of stuck out to you as like a favorite moment of the movie? Large Marge is pretty uh, pretty much up there because uh, when he goes to the bar afterwards and he mentions her and he's like, "You met Large Marge." <laughs> it's a pretty <laughs> wonderful moment for me. I don't. I'm not entirely. The only scene in the movie that I didn't really like is the scene where he goes to uh, the biker bar and dances to tequila. Mm-hmm. That scene really felt like it was dragging for me, but the other scene where he like goes and he finds out about Large Marge and in the entire truck stop scene where he gets out of the truck and then she like gives him a final scare is like really really terrific stuff. I feel like the biker scene was actually extended because it was such a hit from the trailer uh, that like tequila dance was already a hit before the movie actually hit theaters. Uh, so I could see why they wanted to keep more footage in there. 
it's endearing to me now because Elvira plays one of the the bikers in the scene in her regular Cassandra Peterson drag. Uh, so I was just like excited to have her in the movie. But yeah, I could see how that scene goes on a little longer than some of the other tangents. Yeah, if you don't find that specific dance he does that funny, which I didn't really, uh, it can uh, it can drag. Uh, no pun intended. And one more question, just to kind of wrap it up. Like, do you think you'll dig further into Pee Wee as a concept? Like, there's two sequels to this movie. He has his kids show that came after the movie. What do you think your like relationship to Pee Wee will be like from now on? It already has. I immediately after the movie was over realized that there is a 45 minute Christmas special from Pee Wee's uh, Playhouse on Netflix, and I watched it immediately after, which is something I never, ever would have watched before Big Adventure, and I've been challenged by you to watch this movie. <laughs> and uh, the Pee-Wee's Christmas special is like one of my, now one of my favorite Christmas specials. It is so jubilantly against giving you a moral that it, it just, it's just about like the anarchist, like this like anarchist sort of sense of fun uh, about Christmas as a, a holiday, and there's like weird character conflicts conflicts between like the different members of the house, all the inanimate objects that are made animate by the power of Pee Wee's house. One of my favorite uh, favorite moments in it that's like because I think I just like dictator Pee Wee the best. Like, paranoid dictator Pee-wee. I mentioned the scene in the basement where after he gets his bike stolen, he's accusing everyone of being part of the plot, including Dottie. But in the in this episode, the Christmas episode, there's an amazing moment where uh, his two friends are, like, uh, stuffing Christmas cards for him. And he turns... He, he, there's, like, it's, like, snowing outside. Pee-wee's getting ready to go play in the snow. And uh, they're like, oh, can we go play outside, Pee-wee? And then he tells them no because they have to stay in and, and stuff cards. And that, like, made me, like, cry laughing because it's that is that is the show so far for me in a nutshell is like we are going to skip past all the morals and like Pee Wee is not necessarily going to be like this super nice dude it's just going to be this like manic cavalcade of like here's another cameo share us in this episode and that's like kind of true to how kids are like if you give a kid power they will turn into a little tyrant like immediately <laughs> yeah um, so i feel like that fits in with like his eccentric man child character for sure oh yeah it's a it's a really uh, wonderful special i'll definitely keep watching more i've been informed by people that those are the two best Wee things so i love both of the sequels but i'm also very biased there like a lot of people don't Especially Big Top Pee Wee gets a really bad rep, but I really like that movie a lot. Is that the Netflix one? What's the Netflix one? No, the Netflix one is a another road trip adventure, and it's actually made by the people associated with PFR. Oh, wow. Who did Xavier Renegade Angel and... Um, Wonder Showsen. Wonder Showsen. This one, Big Top Pee Wee, is a... It's a late 80s sequel that's set at a circus, like a sideshow. So it's kind of like Pee Wee meets Freaks. Uh, but it's very, like, kid-friendly. Uh, people hate that movie, and I love it. <laughs> I'll ha- I will have to watch it then, because the idea of a divisive sequel re- will really test uh, whether or not uh, I just like this one or two movies, or if I like the whole thing. Yeah, and, and actually the show is a lot like the Christmas special, except with less, like, Bing Crosby-style celebrity cameos. It'd be an expensive show with that. Yeah, you can't you can't afford to have Grace Jones come on every episode, but um, <laughs> the show's definitely worth watching as well. I will. I will definitely j- dive into that as well. I've heard uh, great things about that, but I just generally avoid it because I was like, that's a kid's thing. Maybe I'll get into it when I have kids someday. Like, But uh, I'm very glad that you made me watch it because it was worth it. 
It's only second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool. We were doing an experiment. We were trying to get it back alive. That was my idea. And, and water balloons thrown at tourists? You can't fuck with tourists. They didn't tip us. Are you serious? No. Oh my God, this is unacceptable. I failed as a mother, Mooney. You've disgraced me. Harley? Yeah, Mom, you're disgraced. And now it's time for our annual wrap-up of the New Orleans Film Festival. Joining me for this conversation is former co-host of the show, Cece Chapman. Hey! Back for a pretty big roundup. This festival for 2017 occurred around mid-October, and we're recording about a month after it happened. Probably not even going to post it until mid-December. So we're kind of like trying to remember all these like films that we watched over the course of a week. And I'd say this year we saw more than we've ever seen at the film festival before. Oh, definitely. Yeah. We saw so many films. <laughs> At one point, I was planning to see about 17 movies over the course of a week, and I ended up seeing about 15 instead, uh, oh, which is probably better for yeah. my health. So, so many fewer. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and there was even stuff we couldn't fit in our schedule that we wanted to see, so kind of glad that we did pare it down a little bit. The opening night, though, was at the Orpheum, which is like one of the nicer places you could possibly watch a movie in New Orleans. That theater is one of our oldest ones. It just got renovated. It has gorgeous ceilings and just... Yeah, really beautiful uh, plaster detailing. It's not an atmospheric theater, meaning uh, that it simulates sunrise and sunset and has stars on the ceiling, but it is similar in style. It's as close as you can get to an atmospheric theater without actually being one. The Sanger is, is the city's only atmospheric theater, which is really neat. And they put a pretty nice screen in the Orpheum, too. It's like pretty much like movie chain size. It's a pretty large screen. It's loud yeah. enough that even if people are chattering, you can hear over it. Yeah. Uh, we saw Singing in the Rain there for free earlier this year, and people were kind of more talkative because it was like a free movie from the 50s. Yeah, I, I would say, I don't know if they upgraded since then, but I remember Florida Project looking a lot nicer than Singing in the Rain, and that might have also been because Singing in the Rain was just played off of a DVD copy that wasn't remastered in any way. It was just a regular DVD. And Florida Project, obviously, was a much higher quality yeah. film. It's possible Film Society brought in their own projectors, too. Yeah, because uh, I don't think that they were responsible for the singing in the rain. Um, no, they weren't. No, that yeah. was that was that was a different group. Well, this was kind of a big to do because it's at the big nice theater. They had like a huge red carpet event. This is opening night. You and I did not pay for the fancy schmancy tickets, so we waited outside forever to get in. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to like spend all my time grousing about it, but I I definitely want to point out that. There are more efficient ways they could have done that to make everyone feel special on opening night. It's a 900-seat capacity theater. It's one of the largest in the city uh, that shows film. And rather than mark off VIP seating and let everyone else go in about half hour before the movie, get drinks, sit down, go pee, that kind of thing, they had a red carpet event with photographers, and they had all of the VIPs go in first and pick out their seats. But the VIPs, for the most part, are filmmakers and people kind of in the biz, and they've either already seen the film or they don't really care that much about the film, and so they all kind of mill about outside until the movie actually starts, and so everyone else had to wait until they got their drinks and went pee and sat down, and then we could go in, and that just ate up so much time. And then they had a big second line outside to bring them all to an after party. Yeah. They were definitely catering to like the people group. who paid for the festival. Yeah, the people much. who flew in, right. which I get because they're the ones who truly pay for the festival. I uh, mean, we paid for a lot of tickets out of our pockets on top of the regular Film Society tickets we get just for yeah. being members. Yeah, so I mean, I, I feel like they could have done a way to make everyone feel special, you know, by like marking off their section so that they could come in when they felt comfortable coming in, uh, that kind of thing, and then let the rest of us get off our feet because we had been standing for hours. <laughs> well, usually we wouldn't even go to these, these like mm -hmm. big opening nights, closing night 
yeah. scenes because of that exact reason. Yeah. But this year, we just really wanted to see the Florida Project as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the follow-up to Sean Baker's film Tangerine from a couple years ago. Which we saw twice. <laughs> yeah, which we saw twice in the theater. And actually, because we were kind of so overwhelmed by like the glitz and glamour of this opening night ceremony... We drank a little too much, and it was kind of a rowdy screening. Well, we, had, we, had a, we were just standing in line waiting. It was like, what are we going to do? Let's yeah. just go to the bar and grab another drink, and then get back in line, and maybe wait for another half hour, and, you know. <laughs> well, we ended up seeing it a second time, like, weeks after the festival, because I left thinking that was my favorite movie of the year, and I didn't know if I had just, like, kind of got swept up in the mood. Mm-hmm. But watching it again, I think this might still be my favorite movie of the year. It's really beautiful, and just as anarchic, and, like, dangerously energetic as Tangerine is, even though it's about little kids and not sex workers. Yeah, definitely. Um, I haven't actually looked at everything I've watched this year, so I can't say whether or not this is my favorite film of the year uh, without going back and re-remembering everything. Because I do feel like I, I still am like on that like high. Like, oh my god, I haven't seen anything like this in a long time, if ever. The colors were gorgeous. They used actual film for it. The acting, for the most part, was really good. And then also, it is such a punch in the face to like authority figures and it's a jangly disjointed way of telling a story and yet it works so well that's what's so beautiful about sean baker's movies is he makes these like films documenting these people who kind of live on the fringe of society this one specifically is filmed at the outskirts of disney world so instead of the tourists who come in and out and actually have money to spend these are the people who live at these sort of like pay-by-the-week extended stay motels surviving on the breadcrumbs at the edge of the tourist industry. Mm -hmm. And there is a movie to be made sort of exploiting this for like kind of a poverty porn aspect. But instead, this one's very celebratory. And like you said, sort of laughs at authority. Uh, He said one of his biggest inspirations for it was the Our Gang shorts, uh, The Little Rascals, which makes so much sense. So much sense, which I grew up watching the VHS tapes of Our Gang, the original uh, 1930s Our Gang, and then some of the 1950s Our Gang shorts. And it definitely has the energy and feeling of the early, early 1930s uh, shorts. The way like the kids all play across color lines and socioeconomic backgrounds. They all just kind of play in the same dirt. And it kind of has that feeling to it, to where, like, there are no adults. You're like, where are all the adults? Why aren't adults supervising the kids, both in our gang and in this? And I think it gives them room to be their own characters. Well, you have Willem Dafoe plays the hotel manager, Bobby, who's kind of like a reluctant adult figure. Like, it's kind of his job to maintain order at this motel it's called the magic castle trying to trick people into thinking they're going to the magic kingdom so he normally would have to be this authority figure where he has to like evict people for not paying their rent and things and he wants to keep a professional distance but he has like a really soft heart so he kind of like gets wrapped up in these kids daily activities well yeah and if like one of the kids gets like hit by a car or drowns in the pool or something that's not <laughs> going to be good for his business so right. like he's kind of forced to constantly be in proximity with them and keep an eye out but then at the same time like he isn't really involved in their adventures and then we have a few single mothers as well mm-hmm. uh, you know like restaurant workers sex workers that kind of thing but mostly it does feel kind of like our gang where it feels like a series of episodic shorts Mm -hmm. this lady behind us this older woman was very upset about 40 minutes in the movie she goes does this movie have a plot like really loud to her date and I was just thinking to myself, like, no, it doesn't. No, of it's course so that great. doesn't need a plot. Our childhoods <laughs> didn't have a plot, and yeah. that's what this is. It's a slice of someone's life. It's very realistic in a lot of ways. 
I recommend seeing it. I think I even enjoyed it slightly more than Tangerine, and I loved that movie, so. Yeah, Tangerine is definitely my movie of the year. The year it came out, two years 2015? ago? 2015? Yeah. Yeah, so this one is definitely in my top five, if not my favorite movie of the year. And the next movie I saw was The Next Day, and it was just a much quieter, in the middle of the day, uh, experience at the Ace Hotel, which is this weird labyrinth of different restaurants and bars and they have like this one auditorium that they use kind of like a black box theater to show movies in. And it was weird just because it was at noon and it was packed already. This is the world premiere for this French film called Wale. A lot of French movies I've seen in the past few years, like dramas, have been about immigrants living in like the housing blocks or the edge of Paris and stuff. So this is kind of like project housing, I guess. Mm-hmm. And usually in these movies, like I'm specifically thinking of like girlhood and swagger a little bit. You stay in the housing blocks and you watch these kids who are usually first or second generation like African immigrants, uh, sometimes uh, from different Muslim countries as well. They have a hard time being allowed into like French society like they just kind of live within these insular communities and aren't allowed to like integrate yeah they don't live in the urban area of Paris like the set of Amelie is a completely alien world to these kids in this movie it's a little different the way they handle it this one child is a sort of like wannabe badass like he poses in all these rap videos and commits these kind of like minor vandalism crimes and like acts like he's a bigger deal than he is His father is the first-generation immigrant, so he never experienced what life in Africa was like or anything like that. But he ends up stealing money from these, like, money orders his dad's sending back home. And, like, small amounts of cash, but it was to buy, like, tennis shoes. And that money meant a lot more to the village where his dad was sending the money back to. And to punish him for doing this, he sends the kid home to his family who he hasn't seen since before the kid was born. And, like, makes him repay the debt through, like, a summer of manual labor. It's like you will work in the water fishing with your uh, with your mean uncle to pay back the money you stole out of these money orders that I was sending home. The kid is very reluctant to do this, and it becomes this sort of like coming of age drama slash comedy about him like experiencing love for the first time and like meeting the people he was kind of ripping off to like get fancier shoes and like iPads and stuff. And it's just like a really interesting take on that French immigrant experience, just because. You usually don't see the kids go back home to Africa, and it's a really good literal visualization of like how these kids are stuck between two cultures. He doesn't understand how this African village works, like even like the plumbing and everything is very foreign to him. And at the same time, as he's locked out of Paris as well, so he's kind of like stuck between these two different cultures. That he never feels like he's part of. And the movie has like really good like humor about like circumcision rituals that he like refuses to participate in for obvious reasons because he's like a thirteen year old kid, uh, <laughs> and. Um, you know, like, him, like, listening to, like, hip-hop and his, like, mosquito tent and stuff. Like, it, it's good, like, cultural clash, coming-of-age drama. It's called Wale. W-A-L-L-A-Y. That was really good. And the same day, I went to the Advocate headquarters by myself and saw this movie, The World is Mine. This is a weird documentary, quote-unquote. <laughs> it's directed by and starring this lady, Anne Oren. Uh, you don't know anything about her as a person. Except that she's a cosplayer and a westerner. And you see her show up in Tokyo already in full costume as this character named Hitsune Miko. Hitsune Miko is this vocaloid, quote-unquote, uh, which means it's like a fake persona computer program. Like it's, It looks like an anime character, but it's not from any type of like manga or anything like that. She literally is just a computer program that you feed music and lyrics into, and she sings songs as if she were a real pop star. 
And all these people go to these concerts that are basically just a screen with this cartoon character singing these like fake songs onto and people go apeshit for it because she's like a really cool looking futuristic character. And you see this lady dress up like her and try to date Japanese men who are huge fans of the character and just try to like document what it feels like to not be yourself in this other culture and to dress up as a fake version of what's already a fake character. It's very bizarre. <laughs> I don't know anything about her. I don't even know she speaks Japanese. A lot of the times she like just kind of nods along and smiles while people talk. Uh, but the movie is more about like identity and like weird technological like eeriness. Like it just allows these creepy sounds to come in and make these weird interactions that are like twice removed by technological barriers to become disturbing. It's a very strange movie. I, I still don't know what to think about it, except that it's like a singular experience and should be seen. A lot of like lost in translation song lyrics and stuff. Like, you know, whenever you translate anime pop music, like from your name earlier this year, like the mm -hmm. lyrics just don't really make much sense in English. No. So there's all these lines about like the homecoming of our future and like dying to become a god. And they're played for this like disarming nightmare effect over the soundtrack. And the sound was also way off at The Advocate. It was their first screening there of the year. So I couldn't tell what pops and weird ambient noises in the soundtrack were actually part of the movie. And, and what was just the projectionist. Yeah. So yeah, it was just a bizarre experience. I don't even know what else to say about it. So if you ever see that, it'll probably end up on like VOD at some point. The World is Mine. Very strange movie. The next one we saw was Back of the Advocate, and it was a short film called Friday, which is a pun. Yeah, spelled F-R-Y as in the delicious fried potato day. And this is set at the historical event of Ted Bundy's execution. This girl in high school is selling Polaroids to tourists who have come to stand outside the prison while Ted Bundy gets executed inside by electrocution. By electrocution, thus, you know, the frying pun. We both really liked this movie. Especially with the thing it was paired with, which we'll talk about after. Uh, it was really good atmospheric, kind of like, not quite horror like, it's taking a horrific theme, but kind of setting in a more, like, dreamlike landscape. Uh, really good acting from all of the characters. They were all extremely well done. The sets were really beautiful. Uh, the costumes were extremely accurate, accurate era accurate. Um, when would that have been, like, early 80s? Yeah, probably early yeah. 80s. Because some of the fashion seemed kind of 70s, and it would have taken a few years for, like, 80s fashion to really creep in, so. I'd say the theme of this movie... Not only because of, like, Ted Bundy, but also because of the interactions she has with, like, these, like, kind of jockish guys that she has a crush on, is that, like, white, handsome men are terrifying. That's it. Yep. <laughs> white, handsome men. They're terrifying. Don't trust white, handsome men. Because she's kind of, like, this nerdy girl who's just yeah. there to make a few spare dollars, and she has a crush on an older, handsomer boy who is kind of playing on the fact that she's obviously interested in him mm -hmm. and goads her into doing these like dangerous things and straying away from the safety of a crowd so that they could take advantage of her. It's not like a gross sexual no. taking advantage of, but it's really no. harsh. Yeah. There's a very tense scene where it could have gone in a very different direction. I was very glad that it didn't. One of the beats that really got to me was like someone who could be coming to her like aid in that moment, but also is just another white man stranger and she doesn't know if she should trust them. Yeah. And like the whole movie's been hammering that theme over and over again in like the subtle way. And it really got under my skin. It was a very creepy 10 minutes. Super short, super effective, uh, very economical use of time for storytelling. And you can watch a trailer of that one online right now. I don't think yeah. they have the full movie up yet, but you can watch a little clip of it. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and that was paired with Young and Innocent, 
which is a loose retelling of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, but messes with the basic DNA of Psycho to the point where you still don't know what's going to happen. It follows the plot pretty accurately, except in this case... Instead of older characters, uh, our protagonist, Marion, is a teenage girl who's run away from a poetry camp that she uh, was attending. She steals the money that they're supposed to use for lunch that day to board a bus and book a hotel room uh, at a motel where she meets uh, this young motel manager uh, named Norman. Yeah, it takes a little while for you to recognize what you're watching. Like, mm-hmm. the part at the Emily Dickinson writing camp, like, you, you would never know. know that was Psycho. yeah. Even though her name's Marion, I guess is your first clue. But by the time she steals the lunch money and is on the bus and she hears all these like voices in her head where she imagines people talking about her poetry and talking about... Her reasons for running away and yeah. spinning the story to make themselves look better. She realizes there's no way she can go back at this point. And then by the time she meets Norman, who rents her a hotel room and he offers to make her a snack because she's alone... Like, that's when you start to realize, like, oh, this is just psycho. But the movie toes this weird line between, like, awkward romance humor between these two characters and a real legitimate, like, horror mystery. Uh, Norman isn't super creepy in the way that, like, Vince Vaughn played him in the remake. It's more like Anthony Perkins in the original, where he's, like, kind of this affable, nice guy with his, like, sleeves rolled up and stuff, and he's, like, just got these weird little quirks. And the movie plays it almost for, like, flirtatious romance humor yeah he obviously has some like issues that kind of seem more like maybe he's on the spectrum he doesn't like being touched he you know likes things to be a certain way but it just seems like he likes things really regimented maybe not quite on the spectrum maybe just you know some some ocd issues or some other like minor mental health issues that don't really get in the way of his regular life but you know make some of his social interactions a little more awkward which is all kind of in line with the original film. I think more the way that Marion Crane is treated feels different. I don't know if her last name is actually Crane in this version, but the way Marion go into her last name on this. I don't she think. is not immediately murdered. <laughs> no, uh, okay, spoiler: she doesn't get murdered in the first five minutes. And the movie teases the shower scene several times and keeps like goading you into like wondering if Norman's actually a murderer. And it's funny how even though Marion survives and keeps going on after when she initially would be taken out, there's still a question of whether or not Norman is going to kill her. And by keeping her alive, the mystery of the movie remains alive. Because we've all seen Psycho at this point. We don't know what's going to happen next now that the pieces have been shifted around a little bit. Well, and after the, the first shower scene happens really early on, and then she continues living, but then it's almost like she's in this dream state. Like, she's not answering her phone, she's not interacting with anyone but Norman. No one really knows she's there, so she kind of just stops existing. She is kind of dead, in a sense, because nobody knows where she is, and if, if no one knows where you are, how do they know you're alive? Are you even alive? And she keeps having these weird, surreal dreams about this girl who actually was killed. Yeah, but well, we don't know what happened to her. She's missing. Like, she just went missing somewhere near the hotel, and without having ever met the girl, without knowing anything about her, she starts seeing bits and pieces of this other girl's life. And I really appreciated, like, how the movie could be, like, kind of cute and romantic Mm -hmm. in one scene, and then, like, actually really unnerving in another. I think Norman, that portrayal is, like, as close to Anthony Perkins' original performance as you could possibly get yeah i was cheering norman on in this i was like yeah norman like marion is marion i think would be good for you like you know she'll teach you to kind of interact with the outside world you cannot murder her you know you guys benefit each other 
I just saw Psycho for the first time this year because um, I thought that I'd seen it before, and I had always pictured Norman as like this, like creepy, looking up at you, like giving this menacing look to the camera, just because I had seen clips from the movie and sort of pieced the narrative together in my mind. I didn't realize he was like such like a kind of nice guy through most of the movie, and maybe that's why Friday was such a good pairing with this. Mm-hmm. It's like these like handsome, affable, nice guys are actually these, like, threats the closer you look at them and the more you let them, like, take advantage of your vulnerability. But yeah, I really liked this movie. I thought yeah. it was... It was like a Rugrats version of Psycho, you know? Yeah. Like, they were babies. <laughs> they were just, it's them as babies. Muppet Babies version? Yeah, Muppet Babies. There you go. <laughs> no, it's also... Um, dream pop would be like kind of the way i would describe this like a dream pop version because a lot of pastel coloring a lot of soft neon lighting kind of a a slow synthy dream pop soundtrack and i always think of like bedrooms with dream pop and she does spend a lot of time in the Mm -hmm. hotel room alone just kind of like listlessly bored and playing with the sheets you know yeah Uh, norman certainly loves clean sheets and so there's (laughs) a lot of scenes of them just like hanging out under like a pile of clean sheets and like little bed tents uh, listening to fake Elliot Smith songs. <laughs> well, the next short that we saw was actually one of my favorite movies we saw all throughout the fest. Definitely. You can actually see this on Vimeo right now. It's called OK, Call Me Back. It's directed by a woman that you see on screen in front of this like beautiful wallpaper, just making these like voicemails to a booty call, pretty much. And she's kind of saying she wants this guy to come over and, like, take care of her sexually. Her dialogue never once explicitly says that. It's only through the experimental uh, stop-motion animation that's paired with it. Uh, you never see her face, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, you only see, like, her mouth and her hands. And you see her manipulating objects. It's live action. Manipulating objects. But then, like, we'll see, like, her issues that she's having with these objects as, like, a stop-motion animation of those objects. And um, the objects include these, like, very sexually suggestive, like, fruit and, like, batteries and... Yeah, she's trying to say, like, she needs somebody to come over because she's feeling very tense and she needs a neck massage and only they can give her the right kind of neck massage. And she has a device that will help her massage her neck. But, you know, it's like a banana and the top is cut off of the banana and she's trying to, like, jam batteries in it. Yeah. And so the insides of the banana are, like, spewing <laughs> out. Or it's like a cucumber and she's trying to get the top back on but it won't screw on because it's a cucumber and obviously doesn't have threads so you know the two halves of cucumber never come asunder it's a very like gorgeous film on top of being Mm -hmm. like funny for all like frustrated sexual humor like it's just a beautiful art piece like yeah no vibrant colors very tropical kind of color palette and look really beautiful lighting remind me a lot of james bidgood oh yeah james bidgood for sure yeah, which also has kind of a bedroom photo shoot feel to mm-hmm. it. And it's the length of a voicemail that you would leave on someone's phone. Yeah. So it's extremely short. And it's called OK Call Me Back. And yeah. definitely check that out on, video, on Vimeo as soon as you can. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that was paired with this film, She's Allergic to Cats at Canal Place, which was also one of my favorite movies we saw at festival. Mm-hmm. This is a like Tim and Eric style awkward comedy with a lot of like VHS like overlay on top of the visuals. And also awkward acting from, like, non-professional actors. Uh, It references a lot of, like, So Bad It's Good type movies, like Howard the Duck and Congo and... Boy in the Plastic Bubble. Yeah, there's a lot of that, because that's, like, public domain. It's public domain, so they show (laughs) large amounts of Boy in the Plastic Bubble. But unlike something like the Greasy Strangler or something like that, this one has these moments of, like, genuine terror that sort of creep in. Uh, It's about this pet groomer in Hollywood who moved out there to get famous doing video art. 
he, in the film, makes the same kind of video experiments the movie looks like. And in these moments where he is making these gross collages of, like, rats and bananas and uh, naked women... Oh, yeah, there's, like, these gif-like repetitions of dogs' anal glands being expressed, so these, like, squirting dog buttholes, like, over and over and over again. But invading that Tim and Eric-style, like, gross-out humor are these moments that are, like, genuine cries for help. It's like, my life is a mess. My mess is a mess. I need help. Like, spells it out. Like, this is a desperate empty life I'm living and I need to be broken out of it. It reminded me a lot of the remake of Willard. Uh, that's the movie with Crispin Glover where he has rats. In this case, this guy also has rats and it's also driving him to the brink of insanity. Um, but he does not befriend the rats and cause them to be a rat army to kill his enemies. He just attempts poorly to kill them but fails miserably. And I mean, there are so many fucking rats. It's so <laughs> fucking disgusting. Uh, nobody can stay sane while having rats crawl around on them. I'm sorry. You just, you can't day in, day out live in that sort of environment and like be healthy. And if there's any kind of plot to the movie, it's in the rats. He has this like big date. He's trying to uh, stage with like Mickey Rourke's daughter's personal assistant. Is I think how they mm-hmm. describe this woman. And she's like this woman who's like way above his oh, league. She's gorgeous. Yeah. And he is a <laughs> He's just woo. So he wants to have her over for a date, but he has this rat-infested apartment that's like so gross. And his Tommy Wiseau type landlord will not do anything about it. And the anxiety of bringing this hot woman back home to his disgusting apartment is like what drives a lot of like the imagery in the movie, like the half-eaten bananas and the just like nasty rodents crawling everywhere. Fucking, they're fucking on all of his stuff. <laughs> And that's the where the title of the movie comes from, because he brings home a cat from his pet grooming job to take care of the rats that his landlord won't get rid of. And it turns out the woman he brings home is allergic to cats. And that allergic reaction leads to this like genuine body horror moment. Uh, and there's also the horror level of his dream project is to make an all-cat remake of Carrie, the Brian De Palma film. And... He's terrible at pitching this idea. He also doesn't care about cats, really, so he doesn't no. know a lot about cats or, like, how feasible it would be to get cats in little sissy space costumes and then pour, like, blood on them. He doesn't really understand the logistics of his own movie. <laughs> so nobody will help him with it because it is obviously a bad idea. It's a poorly planned project. Yeah. And his storyboards were beautiful, though. He had binders full of storyboards and, like, little plastic, like, paper protectors. Those themselves, I think, he could have made money on, but the film, oof. Well, as collage art and just, like, this, like, Tim and Eric aesthetic, it kind of reminds me of, like, The Room, but, like, with a lot of Geneva jacuzzi layered mm-hmm. on top of it. Definitely. Very uh, L.A. in the 2010s. Oh, I can't remember that, the name of the filmmaker, but there's a woman who makes the films with Geneva jacuzzi, uh, and she also is a big part of GLOW, the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, which is, like, one of my favorite wrestling promotions, but she's, like, their big manager uh, and makes all their videos. Wait, is that the name of the drag one? The same mm-hmm. same name? No, uh, Gorgeous Ladies Wrestling is, is mostly women. Okay. Yeah, that's the one I follow on Instagram. I thought Gorgeous Ladies Wrestling was the original one. Oh, sorry, uh, Flo. Flo! Sorry. The Fabulous Ladies the fa- Yeah, I think they're the Fabulous Ladies of Wrestling. Oh, uh, yeah, Sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah, they did a thing down here at a bar, and we missed it. Yeah, we did. It was uh, such a bummer. We did not know about it. This is an open call. If you ever hear that there's a drag-themed wrestling event in New Orleans and you do not invite us, we're gonna be super pissed. Super pissed. <laughs> Anyway, go see She's Allergic to Cats if that ever pops up. Apparently it's been on the festival circuit since last year, which is weird to me that it's been this long without getting picked up by, like, Shudder or, you know, Amazon Prime or something. Like, it should be distributed. 
Definitely. And there were, like, a few, like, really uncomfortable scenes where, like, people use language that they definitely shouldn't be using. And I do want to point out that the person who used that language is very obviously, even though we never meet them or see them, a bad person. It's a transphobic slur. It's a transphobic slur that they use in a lost pet ad. And eventually our protagonist breaks into that person's house to return their pet to them, which is a terrible altruistic gesture. You should not break into someone's house in order to return their pet. But they find that this person is obsessed with guns and hunting and talking animal movies. And the juxtaposition of seeing all these mounted animals and then all of these talking animal movies juxtaposed, it just has this very sexual, like energy like he wants to like fucking kill a talking dog or something (laughs) so you should not return this dog back to this person because they seem like a real monster and piece of shit that's kind of the horror of the movie too yeah these like real life like monstrosities sort of invade these kind of goofy trashy moments yeah so just putting that out there trigger warning yeah there's a really gross transphobic slur in this movie but the person who makes it i'm pretty sure is a monster yeah <laughs> like we never see them but oof yeah they should not have i didn't really get the idea that that was condoned no yeah. no it was, it was depiction not condonement oh yeah and one last note on she's allergic to cats I just remember the name. The wrestling circuit we really like is Future Ladies of Wrestling. Not Gorgeous Ladies. I mean, they're cool too. Uh, but Future Ladies of Wrestling, they're out of LA. And JJ Stratford is the person who makes both videos for Geneva Jacuzzi and is a big part of uh, Future Ladies of Wrestling. She's a describes herself on Instagram as a multidimensional artist and a technomancer and a media mogul. <laughs> Um, which all of those are true, but yeah, she's like really big in the LA analog uh, VHS like film scene. I like that she actually uses video equipment that would have been around when Glow was on TV. Yeah, she has probably one of the best collections of analog video equipment I've, I've like seen. She's allergic to cats was filmed on digital and then sort of graded down several times. Yeah, he had different, a very several, complicated like, process. Yeah. he he shot it on 4K, then put it on mini DV, and then put it on VHS, and then put it back on DVD, which is insane. So yeah, maybe someone needs to give this guy like the real equipment so he can yeah. just shoot it straight. Well, he didn't know what kind of effects he wanted to do. It's yeah. a lot easier to do effects if you just shoot it all digital in the first place. You know, if you don't know what you're doing. He also her. said that he made his money um, being a physical stand-in for Daft Punk at public events. Yeah. So like any like not cool parties or like just like regular public appearances in those suits this guy was one of the stand-ins for daft punk which is kind of funny Uh, i love that they don't bother doing all of their own public appearances that's a very la job yeah to pay your bills and make tiny video he did not really get to be in very much of tron though because they did think tron was pretty cool so they were (laughs) mostly in tron themselves well the next movie i saw was by myself it was at broad which is my favorite theater in the city but it was unfortunately my least favorite film so far in the fest. It was like my first big disappointment of the festival. Uh, This is a documentary titled As Is. It was documenting a one-time multimedia performance art event in Louisiana. This is staged by visual artist Nick Cave, not to be confused with musician Nick Cave, which I thought was what was going on when I bought a ticket. But Nick Cave makes these beautiful costumes he calls sound suits which kind of look like Yo Gabba Gabba characters, but made out of, like, cheerleader pom-poms. So, like, when they rustle around, they make these, like, really whooshing audio component on top of, like, the bright colors and sort of, like, human-sized Muppet look that they kind of have. 
I thought they looked a lot like modern versions of the Courier de Mardi Gras suits, too. That is actually part of my complaint about this movie. I totally agree, because Nick Cave comes in as this quote-unquote international artist that's supposed to bring up these Louisiana amateur citizens that he's like saying like, oh, I came in and I elevated the art scene by bringing in these like New York City sensibilities. And the show that he puts on already incorporates things that feel very essential to Louisiana culture. Like you just said, the sound suits look like Cajun Mardi Gras. Career de Mardi Gras? Uh, yeah, Career de Mardi Gras. Yeah, so they look like part of something that should be part of Louisiana culture already. Uh, he also makes these beaded blankets that are supposed to be part of the show as well. And watching all these people in these workshops bead these colorful blankets... It looks exactly like every documentary I've ever seen about Mardi Gras Indian culture. So you have these two Mardi Gras institutions that are part of Louisiana heritage. And he's saying, like, this is all me. Like, I'm coming in and I'm teaching these people how to make art and elevating them. And it's such, like, a pompous ass kind of thing. And just to hear someone talk about their own art for 80 minutes is always going to feel kind of pompous. Uh, But you feel like you're building towards this big event where you finally get to see the payoff. And the show has, like, all these people throwing the beaded blankets on top of him, and he picks up all of the weight of their troubles and rolls them up and carries them off the stage himself. And he has these gospel singers come in and sing this song about, like, he saved me and now I'm free or something like that. But because you never hear any religious aspects of the work, it almost sounds like Nick Cave is God in this scenario. (laughs) No! So you're just building up this guy... And the thing that, like, really disappointed me about it is that you never see the art. You don't get to watch the whole, like, set piece? You see none of it. You get to the end where you see the one-time performance and you get these, like, quick clips in montage with no audio. No performance in whole at all. Like, maybe if this... But you mentioned the gospel part and him, like, being smothered under blankets. That's all in the preparation. So that's all in... The weeks leading up, like, dress rehearsals, piecing it together. He brings in this, like, local rapper named, like, Poetic X or something like that. And it's very, it's pretty much just slam poetry. Uh, And he's, like, riding this guy harder to, like, try harder and bring it to another level. And keeps building him up and, like, pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. And once it gets to the performance, you don't see what the final result is at all. So, the question is, you're watching this performance with these sound suits... Uh, Big Frida comes in and is completely muted during the performance. Don't see Big Frida at all during the documentary, except, like, muted at the end. Very infuriating. There's, like, Zydeco fiddling, light shows, gospel, all this stuff. And you're thinking to yourself, either this is, like, a work of genius, or it's, like, total bullshit and a complete mess. And because I'm not allowed to, like, taste it, I do not know which one it is. (laughs) And yeah, it was just frustrating. You watch the making of a documentary and then you didn't actually get to watch the documentary. Right. Or a film, you know, like, you just watch the featurettes. It's kind of like being told that the greatest band that's ever played musical instruments before played a concert, and then you just see the, like, preparation for the concert and you don't actually get to experience it yourself. It's like, how will I ever know if that was actually true or not? It feels like a total, like, charlatan show. Like, I don't know if this guy is actually talented, other than I think the sound suits look really cool. Yeah, no, that sounds like I would have been extremely upset with him. Probably would have written him a strongly worded letter. (laughs) I have nothing against the dude. I just think that he really likes himself more than I am allowed to like him, because I don't know what his art is actually like. And I don't know if that's, like, a legal issue. Maybe he has some documentary somewhere that's, like, 
actually the performance of As Is on record, or if part of the experience is that it's a one-time ethereal thing that you can't capture on film and you had to be there or you don't get it. Either way, it's very frustrating to watch this documentary, which I don't want to say just because these are like local kids probably filming this event and making like a movie around it. So my inclination would be to give them like kind of the benefit of the doubt and like want to go in having a good time, but it's just too frustrating not to see the end result and all the buildup. Also, I'm not big on like messianic like art pieces. Like kind of reminds me of all the stuff that like Pecker is lampooning. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> I don't. I don't want that. <laughs> no, John Waters would laugh in this guy's face. Yeah. Well, the next movie we saw was better for sure. We saw a short film called Troll. Uh, it's about this woman who trolls a high school musician into pretty much committing suicide. Attempting. And attempting suicide. And then showing up at his hospital to continue the prank uh, because she is that blackhearted. At first, I don't know. I think she's like genuinely trying to check in on him. But like she also like has to know how bad it was. And since no one on the internet will say exactly what he did to himself, she has to know like... Did he set himself on fire? Did he, like, poison himself? Like, what was it? What did she cause? She has to, like, because she set this, like, chain of events in motion, she has to see what the actual end result is. And since nobody will put it on social media for her, she had to go down herself to see what she did. It's not that she wants to do anything to him at this point. She's not going to talk to him again. She has no interest in talking to him. She did the thing she wanted to do. It's kind of like a serial killer returning to the scene of the crime, though. Yeah. It's like enjoying everyone else's pain. Yeah, no, she's, she's relishing it, yeah. then, definitely. But she has no interest in continuing the prank. The prank's done. She just wanted to see what the end was. She didn't get to see. And all you really see her do to him in the first place is she, like, makes these comments like, Haha, you suck at guitar. But he did, though. Yeah, he, he was really, bad. He was awful. <laughs> he was truly a bad musician. And his music teacher, who is the only person you really see on screen other than the troll, is also a pompous ass. He's like, yeah, I really introduced him to a lot of, like, important stuff, like Husker Du and, like, Lemonheads and stuff. And, like, I really feel like I was a positive influence on his life. And, like, just, like, listen to this guy talk about himself. Like, this kid makes him feel better about himself as a shitty person. So, like, he's doing charity for, like, you know bad reasons so that he can feel like he has cool music taste reliving his glory days through like a high school student yeah it's pretty lame it's pretty lame (laughs) i think this movie works as like a proof for like a larger thing like if there was like a longer movie or like a short-lived miniseries or something about this troll i would have been a lot more into it but i liked it as is but it felt like a small chunk of what could be developed into like a larger character yeah like this troll character feels like she has many adventures like this this feels like a part of a larger piece like i'd want to see this character go on and like troll other people and relish in the results i was a little more ambivalent about it like i don't really care about this troll yeah i did like her weird little bowl cut though it's yeah. like very disarming and childlike and then she would like say mean vicious things to people on the internet it's kind of like the monkey's haircut yeah the band yeah she kind of looked like a monkey the and band, not a yeah, actual monkey. yeah the band not the primate yeah uh-huh. <laughs> And the movie was paired with a feature titled Wexford Plaza. Uh, this is a very cheaply filmed indie with a lot of like first-timers in it. And this is set at a strip mall where this girl in her early 20s gets a security guard job. A and really shitty security guard job. Yeah, this is not like a thriving strip mall. This thing like was erected in the 80s. This has just been 
dying ever since. It might be older. It looked like it was erected in, like, the 60s. Yeah. Like, post-war boom. Kind of has that, like, old-timey, old English look to it that was, like, a thing for a little while. Yeah. Like, a fake clock tower and, like, other bullshit. And what's interesting about this movie is that it's bifurcated. You start from her perspective. Which is all I thought the movie was going to be. Yeah, I thought the whole film was going to be this, like, stoner hangout comedy where she sort of wastes the summer with these shitheads that she works with who are, like, sexist pigs. And just sort of smokes weed and drinks too much and masturbates and eats junk food. It's kind of like a low-rent version of like a Seth Rogen-style comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of gross-out humor. And, but the movie always takes her side and not like the gross dudes who are hanging around her. Until it flips. And the second half is from the perspective of this person of color bartender who is in his 30s and works in the same strip mall. And instead of this thing where the service industry is kind of this playground where you like figure your shit out while you're still in the 20 in your 20s he's in his 30s and like needs the job and you see the whole story told again from his perspective where like things mean so much more and it almost shifts completely from a comedy to a drama about halfway through yeah that was what was most interesting about it to me was just the it's perspective on the service industry and how when you're in your 20s it's kind of a joke and you can just kind of like stick around yeah it's just like something to like give you some pocket money while you're sort of wasting your summers like smoking weed uh when you're in your 30s and you're still stuck in the service industry it's a lot more desperate and sad which is something i've experienced personally (laughs) uh what did you think about that movie on the whole uh i liked it it wasn't my favorite thing i saw yeah me neither i did like because a lot of it you know is about like perceptions on like people like the girl herself she's she's cute but she's overweight and she's kind of awkward so a lot of the humor could be like other people's humor towards her was always like kind of mean-spirited like all of her friends are getting married and they're like oh well you know if you fixed yourself up you know you could find someone too oh yeah no it's easy finding a husband you just have to go to the beach of malta you know and have like 25 grand to spend on a summer vacation and like you'll meet mr right she's like i'm broke <laughs> I'm broke and she eats all these sad like lean cuisine dinners in the microwave and stuff like yeah. she's, she really doesn't have a lot going on no she does have the, all those awkward, like, Tinder-type conversations online, Yeah, like, too. and she's trying to, like, present herself as, like, fun and sexy, but she doesn't really feel that way because her life's kind of shitty at this point. So she's always trying on this really, really, like, flippant, like, adorable, like, ha-ha-ha-ha personality, and it's so awful and fake on her. But she's also 20, so, like, she is kind of, like, a dummy still. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no one was at their best at that age. No. No. I think the movie does a good job of like both being sympathetic to where she is in life and yeah. sort of criticizing how not taking life seriously like can be harmful to other to people. To other people. Yeah, yeah. She fucks up someone's life on accident. Just being herself. And the movie's super sympathetic in her half, but then when we see someone else looking at her and you see like her being dumb and vapid like for the sake of attempting to be cute and you see like how like awful it is. Like you lose a little sympathy for her. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe Wexford Plaza wasn't one of the best movies we saw, but... No, it was interesting. I thought a lot about it. When you go to these festivals, though, like, we try to make a point not to see just, like, stuff that's gonna come to Broad Theater in a month anyway. Yeah. Like, we did go out of our way to see uh, The Florida Project for that reason, but I'm glad we went anyway. Like, it was, Yeah, no, I'm, we're, I'm never gonna get to see this film in a theater. Yeah. Uh, it's highly unlikely to get a theater release in our area. Uh, maybe it's originally a Canadian film, uh, so I might get, you know, some kind of release there... And it's also a female director. She's yeah, which I try to find at least a few like that. Um, we did, yeah, we made a point to try and see as many queer films, queer and... films, uh, directors of color, and female directed films. And she was both. She was both a, um, a director of color and also a female director from Canada. 
And if you have an interest in the service industry for whatever reason, like, the movie does have an interesting perspective on yeah. what that's no, like. It, it covers a lot of ground. It covers, you know, like, male-female, like, relationships, you know, heteronormative relationships, you know, the dating scene, working in dead-end jobs when you're too old to be working in dead-end jobs, kind of that existential crisis of, oh my god, like, I am alive, and I, I'm going to die someday, and this is what I'm doing with my finite amount of time on Earth. Like, what the <laughs> fuck like yeah. what an awful idea <laughs> and it's both kind of darkly funny and just like genuinely sad yeah it's both i don't know much but i do know for sure that i lost my virginity to an extraterrestrial woman my first encounter was when I was eight years old, and I've been having them ever since. There were the greys, the little hairy guy, an insect being, and then there was Crescent. They came into my bedroom, and we flowed up. His eyes overpowered. You hurt me, you hurt me. I just lay down on the ground, and she gets on top of me. Yes, it's real. No, it's not. It's just a dream. And I know we said earlier that we didn't go to a lot of the big movies for the festival, but we actually did more this year than ever before. Oh, by far. <laughs> and one of them was the screening of Mudbound, which is Dee Vries' new film, which we made a point to go see because it was going to premiere on Netflix without having a theatrical run. And we felt like, oh, we should go see that movie on the big screen. Probably the only chance we will have to go see it. The film was going to film fest so that it could qualify for an Oscar run, and it's kind of weird to not see an Oscar film in a theater, <laughs> to only get to see it on the small screen, so we just wanted to give ourselves that opportunity. And this is probably the biggest to-do besides the Florida Project that we saw because it was like, quote-unquote, the centerpiece film, and it was packed, and they had uh, critic Angelica Jade Bastian introducing the movie and interviewing Jason Mitchell, who was in the NWA biopic. He played Easy es from New Orleans. So a lot of his family was in town. He also starred in this film. Mudbound was also filmed in Louisiana, so a lot of the crew was there. And it was just like this big event that they were like promoting this movie as, like you were saying, like an early Oscar contender to keep your eye on. And the crowd went absolutely wild for it. Which made me feel bad because I liked the movie, but I wasn't quite as rapturous as the rest of the room. It was a beautiful film. It was a lyrical film. It was a film where the landscape really ground you down, <laughs> uh, which was part of the director's thesis statement. And I liked it a lot. But yeah, I probably didn't need to fight so hard to see it on the big screen. Yeah. Probably could have seen it at home. And which is no fault of the filmmakers, I don't think. Like, no. I think D. Rees made a really impressive epic... For only $10 million. A yeah. bargain. It's a literary adaptation from this book that covers these two families who have to share this farm space. And one is white and one is black. And it's set mostly after World War II. So there's like a ton of characters it has to cover. And it does start slightly before the war and just kind of jumps after it for the most part. And it's about like privilege and it's about PTSD and it's about how these like soldiers come back from the war and their lives are kind of stuck in the rut of where they were before. Like they've been through this horrific trauma and when they come back, they're not recognized for the sacrifices they made. They're left to like stew in their alcoholism or slip back into these like, for the black family, these racist 
constrictions on their freedom that they feel like they've earned a place in the world where they don't have to like deal with that anymore. There's no place in the world left for these soldiers and they come back and their families have to negotiate these levels of privilege where the white family is not used to this farm life and they're relying on their status as the white family on the farm to level their power so the black family basically slips into subservitude just kind of by default. Even though they're technically just renting the land, they're not supposed to be working for them. So the movie has a ton of themes mm-hmm. and a lot of ground to cover, like a lot of time and a lot of like different relationships. Yeah, and then Brandon really only even covered the male perspectives from that movie. It was also about how the privileged white woman, you know, who was well-educated, had a college degree, was an accomplished pianist, it suddenly finds herself, you know, in the middle of nowhere on a farm, which she never expected her life to go. And, you know, the mother uh, of the black family has this unabiding, like, love for her oldest son, and she can't help him uh, in this world that he finds himself in. And so, like, it covers their inner stories. (laughs) It covers so much. And I'd say those two characters, uh, the matriarchs played by Carrie Mulligan and Mary J. Blige, they're actually, like, the more interesting dynamic in the movie. Because what we were saying earlier, it's a $10 million budget. It feels like it's trying to do much more than that. Like, Mm -hmm. it should be, like, a mid-budget, like... $50 $50 million picture. And the boys, when they go off to war, uh, one's played by Garrett Hedlund, it's the white guy, and one's played by, like we said earlier, Jason Mitchell, from who's from New Orleans. The war scenes have this, like, kind of cheapness to them that you don't get on the farm. They're trying to convey a war film with, like, these battle scenes and tanks and airplanes, and you could just feel the budget straining a little bit there. Yeah. But back on the farm, where Carrie Mulligan and Mary J. Blige are more stuck in place... That's where, like, the movie is really effective. Like, everyone's stuck in this muddy landscape. They're literally mud-bound. And uh, just the brutality of having to live on this farm every day is just, like, a heavy weight on the audience. And the themes of, like, racial oppression only build and build on there until it becomes, like, bone-crunching violence. And that stuff really works very well in a way that, like, the more epic war story stuff sort of, like, feels a little more, like, stretched thin. Maybe if the movie had sort of skipped the war story element, like, maybe if it had just shown them coming back from the war without really showing as much, like, in the tank and in the airplane battles and kind of stuck to the drama, I would have felt a little better about it. I don't know. Like, we needed to see exactly what traumatized them so much. The scenes that weren't warfare scenes in Europe, uh, when they were, like, in, like, the German and French villages, like, those scenes were all really beautifully shot as well. And they shot those on location in Europe. So, I don't know. Like, it would have been weird to, like, see the idyllic scenes in Europe and not see, like, how hellish it was, like, on the battlefield and stuff. So, I don't know. Uh, I read an article recently from Dee-Rees where she did talk about how the film should have had double the budget and the film should have been shot in double the amount of time. But, you know, they shot it in a ridiculously short period of time. They shot it for half the budget. And, and you know, it, it got bought for $12 million. So they made a little extra on top. And it got bought way late. Like, they weren't sure that they were going to get distribution at all. And Netflix kind of saved this movie from just, like, not being released at all. And Which is great on Netflix's part. And by the time we got this conversation out, the film's already been out for weeks, and a lot of people have seen it. And it's kind of disappointing that it didn't get a small theatrical run, but I could see 
how getting this film on so many screens like all across the world simultaneously also has its advantages as well. Yeah. I work in a library, so for me it's really frustrating because Netflix does not make DVD copies of their films, which means that we cannot use them for educational purposes. A teacher can sign into their personal account and show it in a class, but if the teacher doesn't have Netflix, then there's no way they can show it in a class. And we also can't say show it to the student body just as something they should see, like uh, Ava DuVernay's documentary last year, 13th, is an extremely important film to show to college students, especially college students at a very privileged school like the one I work at, where it is part of the school's mission statement to make sure they are exposed to other ideas and other viewpoints about the country they live in. And that one, university's got a special one-time viewing license. We could show it one time to the student body outside of the classroom. And we did, and now we'll never get to show it again because that's just how Netflix does it. Whereas if we had a DVD copy of it, we could show it anytime we wanted as long as we paid the license. And we know that they print DVD copies of stuff because they send them as screeners to award yeah, considerations. We have screeners. They have screeners out there. We could have a screener of it, but you know. But they don't send those to libraries. They send them to awards like critics. Yeah. Um, and this movie actually did win the audience award for best feature at the, at the New Orleans Film Festival. Uh, the only other movie we saw, I think, that won an award was um, OK, Call Me Back won the audience award for best short. And we did really like that one. That one was amazing. And I liked Mudbound. I think the performances are really good. And I think all the drama on the farm is really strong. It's just uh, whenever the movie has to go into like the large scale epic that's required for a literary adaptation of this size, uh, I just felt a little strained and like not as effective. After seeing this film, I did go and read the book. It's a really quick read. Uh, and like I said, it really follows the book super closely. The only thing is I felt like, where again, where you see those budgeting constraints, there was an epilogue that kind of tells you what happens after the, the first slash last scene of the film. And we don't get that. So the film just kind of ends. And it ends, you know, at an appropriate place, but like it would have been kind of nice to get a little bit of closure from the two female perspectives, because really they don't get a last word in. And that kind of goes with like having so many themes and storylines and characters in this like kind of tiny budget movie. It kind of by necessity leaves a couple stories untold at yeah. the end, which is a little frustrating. It's a little frustrating because I think that they were the two strongest characters, both in the book and in the film. And the film kind of did them a disservice. And again, I don't think it was Dee Reese's fault. Like, I don't think that was her intention. I just think that there wasn't enough time to really fit everything. And I agree with that, too, because like, like you said earlier, I was trying to do the plot summary. And I feel like a lot of the plot deals with the uneasy friendship between the two male soldiers. But when I was watching the movie, that wasn't like the part I was most emotionally engaged with either. Yeah. So it's kind of weird. They're, they're the catalyst, and the, the female characters are the ones watching them. So we're seeing the male characters through the other two characters' eyes. Interesting. Pi their depiction in the movie is colored by the women's perspective on them. So I feel like they should have bookended the movie like with like an epilogue and a prologue. Whatever. Yeah. The next couple I saw by myself, so I'll try to run through these kind of quickly. I saw this movie Damascene. It's spelled D-A-M-A-S-C-E-N-E. -E. I'm pretty sure this is the only time it's played at a screening. It's the only one I could find so far. But it was actually one of my favorite movies at the festival, and it like really caught me by surprise. Uh, it's filmed on two bicycle helmet-mounted GoPros. So it's two people on bicycles having this hour-long conversation that's more or less unbroken as they bike around London on their way to a party. And you meet these two characters who obviously used to be friends but aren't anymore, and they kind of start off a little standoffish, but basically they start off talking about, like, Friends, the TV show, and, like, Event Horizon, and, like, kind of bullshit as they're driving around, or riding around on their bikes. And as the story 
unfolds more, they actually start picking at old scabs, and you find out, like, oh, they actually used to date. They weren't just friends. Oh, this guy's actually, like, a huge asshole. Like, it just sort of, like, unfolds and unfolds until it gets very dark. Uh, and it reminded me a lot of, like, a stage play. It's got that kind of biting, caustic dialogue that just, like, picks and picks and picks at these, like, small slights until it just gets too big to ignore. And the cathartic ending sort of brings all of these different themes that have been sort of subtly playing throughout into this giant wave of emotion. And it's a really fucking dark, vicious drama at the end. And I really liked it. I would describe the movie as a dark comedy for most of it, but the way it ends is so much more vicious than what you would expect from that kind of description. And for a movie that was obviously filmed for like very little money, there's a little bit of CGI used at one critical point, but for the most part, it's literally just two people with bicycle helmets riding around London and kind of looking at each other while they talk. And that sounds awful, and it was actually, like, really well done. That is why I didn't go to it. I read the description, I said, GoPro movie, no thank you. (laughs) So, I missed out due to my snap judgment. It's only good because it's so exceptionally well written, and it's written like a stage play. Had they taglined it, you know, Edward Albee on bikes, (laughs) I might have gone. Yeah, Albee's a good point. It's very much like that, uh, who's a Freddy Virginia Wolf dynamic, where it's like, Two people who know what hurts the other person and how to slowly apply that pressure to get, like, the desired reaction out of them. And it just only gets more and more vicious as they bike along. Uh, I really liked that one. Less so, uh, Serenade for Haiti was the next one I saw. This is a documentary about the 2010 earthquake that hit Port-au-Prince in Haiti. And the movie has an interesting vantage point filming this. Uh, They sort of document this christian music school in port-au-prince which is the capital and you film these students who are using this school as a way to like sort of bring themselves not out of poverty but like into like a feeling of prestige like they learn like a special skill and they're like they say things like oh i'm trying to show that people of my class can be respectable and stuff and it would be interesting just to see the school that way but in the middle of filming that's when the earthquake hits completely destroys the city and the school itself, and the students sort of continue on after the building's gone and keep playing music anyway. It's not an exceptional film, but it does happen to film a pretty critical time in the country at like from a very specific vantage point that makes it interesting. And it kind of reminded me of like you know post Katrina stuff here. I was about to say uh, there's a documentary called Faubourg Treme about our neighborhood, the Faubourg Treme, and they really just wanted to talk about how you know the Treme was this traditionally freed person of color neighborhood with a lot of Creoles and a lot of interracial mixing and how they have this beautiful, rich music history and cultural history. And then halfway through the documentary, Katrina happens. And, you know, Treme wasn't the worst hit, but they were heavily damaged during Katrina. And the documentary changes. Yeah, I got a little wave of PTSD during that one because I wasn't exactly expecting it when we saw that. Yeah, we thought we were watching a documentary about Faubourg Treme. Yeah. This one, I knew what to expect more so. Uh, But it was sold, like, in the program bill as, like, this, like, lyrical triumph of spirit where, like, music fills the city streets. And even the title Serenade for Haiti has this, like, kind of poetic feel to it. Uh, But the movie itself is actually pretty simple. It just happens to focus on a music school in the midst of this trauma. Well, you see, it is lyrical because they sing lyrics. (laughs) Get it? Like, carnival happens in the middle of it. Which is another reason why it feels close to New Orleans. And Haiti has like a very close tie to New Orleans anyway. Our population doubled after 1807 because of Haitian refugees, so... 
But, you know, this is a pretty straightforward doc, and if you're interested in the subject, I think it does have a very specific lens to look at the earthquake and its aftermath, but it's not necessarily going to blow your mind as far as, like, film craft goes. The next documentary I saw, though, really did blow my mind, and it's probably my favorite doc I've seen all year. This is a profile of the artist David Huggins. The film is called Love and Saucers. It's about a visual artist who lives in New Jersey, more or less by himself, and, like, works this sort of menial job at a deli around the corner and the most interesting thing about him and his art is that he has experienced hundreds of encounters with extraterrestrials and most of these encounters are sexual david lost his virginity to a space alien at 17 and has continued to have like hundreds of abductions and visits from these creatures that have sex with him in his apartment or take him on a spaceship and have his babies up there. This is my favorite kind of recent documentary. It's very oral history uh, where there's no judgment on what David is reporting. It just sort of watches him express these stories through his art. He illustrates each encounter as he remembers it. And the movie does not have any skepticism about whether or not what he's saying is true. Rodney Asher does a lot of that. He did that um, He did that documentary about The Shining where people sort of t- tell all these conspiracy yeah, theories. four or six different theories about what The Shining actually means. Yeah, and the movie doesn't really critique those. No, it just lets people tell what they think their theory is. Whether they think it's about how he is apologizing for faking the moon landing. Or it's him uh, critiquing the United States on its policies regarding Native Americans. Or, you know, it's it's something to do with the New World Order. Who knows? And honestly, that does have its dangers. People can see this movie as kitsch. The opening line of the film is David confessing that he lost his virginity to a space alien. And my audience laughed. And I was more struck by, like, how terrifying that is. Like, just his belief that these things are happening to him over and over again, like, is really scary. And the paintings themselves are this impressionistic style that just have these sort of, like, aliens sort of airdropped in. So they have these, like, you know, the traditional grays with, like, the, mm-hmm. you know, the X-Files type alien. There's, like, these Bigfoot characters. And there's also, like, a huge praying mantis that likes to watch him have sex. <laughs> Uh, and the the one alien that keeps having sex with them has an alien gray-shaped head, but like a voluptuous woman's body. And these characters recur over and over in his paintings. So he's built this sort of like Henry Darger mythology through his own like work. Like Marwin Call or... Yeah, Marwin Call's a good point of view as well. Uh, and it's, you know, a very earnest film in a way that I would be scared it wouldn't be. Kind of like Marwin Call, like that movie yeah. doesn't laugh at that artist no. at all. This one is equally sad and scary, and also a little funny, because he does have a sense of humor, and he's always smiling, and he's in a good mood, except that he's, like, scared of these things that keep happening to him. Oh, so he doesn't he doesn't want to have sex with aliens? He f- has a sort of love affair with this character, uh, I can't remember her name, but mm. he gets really bummed out about the babies they have, and, like, what happens to the babies, and how that's out of his control, and it's not that he doesn't have affection for the woman, it's that he just can't control when it happens. Like, it's something that's done to him. Um, and he does have a wife and a child oh, so in the real had, world. Oh, so he's had human sex. Yes. Oh, okay, because I thought the only sex this guy has ever had his whole life is with the aliens. He does have an adult son who is interviewed in the film. His wife, who, who may be his ex-wife for all I know, um, declined to be interviewed. But yeah, if nothing else, you have to check out David Huggins' art. Just give Google it. There's tons of paintings out there with great scans and they all look really weird and they will hook you into this movie. And I also just found out that this one's getting distribution through Amazon and VOD platforms. So you can watch this 
if not now, then fairly soon. It's happening this month. Love and Saucers. The next film we saw together was another documentary. We actually managed to find like a streak of queer films finally at one point in the festival. Oh man, they just didn't release like <laughs> anything that was queer that wasn't about AIDS. And, you know, obviously that is an important topic, but I really want to just see films where, you know, queer people are living their normal lives and expressing themselves and, you know, not dying. And the one queer film about AIDS I wanted to see uh, was that movie BPM that everyone's raving about and I didn't play here. Kind of a bummer, but the next one was a documentary called The Joneses, which I did enjoy. It's, It's about a trans mother. She's an older woman who's raising her three adult sons in Mississippi in this, like, trailer park. Her sons are still all involved in her life, even though they're, like, much older than, like, teenage dependents. Uh, They're all, I think, in their, like, 30s or 40s. Some have to live in mental institutions. Some require her assistance, like, at work. Uh, And some, like, actually live in her home with her. And it's kind of this, like, slice of life documentary where you just sort of watch her hold this family together and the movie tries to engineer some drama out of her revealing her, like, assigned birth gender to her grandchildren, who are not in the know. Um, what did you think about The Joneses? Uh, I liked it. Um, I didn't love the documentary style. I thought it was a little clumsy. And also, I found that Mrs. Jones was really the most interesting character. Uh, I mean, obviously, her sons are real people, so I can't really call them characters, But I really wanted to hear her tell her story more. I thought she was so fascinating and had such a big personality and obviously wanted to tell her story so much. I was a little disappointed that she didn't get more screen time in a film that was ostensibly about her. A lot of it was about family drama. She actually has four sons. Four sons. She has four sons. One is married and has kids uh, and lives on his own and has his own business. One is schizophrenic and autistic and lives uh, in not a mental institution, but a nursing home, essentially. And then two, her other two sons live with her. One is developmentally disabled and legally blind, I believe. And then the other one... Goes through his own crisis. Goes through movie. his own crisis, yeah. Because it, he, he had the most emotional issues about her coming out as transgender uh, when they were younger and he had the most like anger and frustration about it and yeah so like you get to see him like come to terms with it finally even though he's been living with his mom now for like a couple years you get to see him finally like kind of come to a, a, a sense of peace he's the real like arc of the film because he starts off very frustrated and angry and like not sure what to do with himself by the end of the movie he seems like a much happier yeah. well-adjusted person uh, but like you said the movie's strength is jerry jones herself who has this kind of like Edie from Grey Gardens vibe. Like she could just model clothes for you or like burn toast and it's like instantly entertaining. Yeah. Like she's like so easy I could to watch, watch that woman burn so much toast. And she does burn a lot of toast in yeah. the film. Every <laughs> single shot where she's feeding her sons, there is burnt toast. And I don't understand <laughs> how that kept happening. Like other than the fact that she was just fun at burning toast. Like that was just, that was part of the charm. And the cool thing about the screening was they had her and her two sons that live with her at the festival, like, answering questions after the fact. And personally, I always hate post-screening Q&As. The questions are always, like, about the person asking the question and not, like, anything to do with the movie. But I have to say the post-screening Q&A at this movie was better than the film itself, just because we got to talk to Jerry and hear her talk about her own life in her yeah. own words, which is really cool. I didn't answer some of my questions, like, how did this documentarian find you in the first place? You know, stuff like that. Like, like I, the one thing I wish I had asked her was, like, what she would have done if she had creative control. Oh, but it's so awkward because the director was there, too. Oh, gross. So, I yeah. didn't think the director was there. 
Well, I think yeah, the director is like the worst part of the film. Like you can feel the movie searching for conflict in these things that aren't really that terrible. Like yeah. it's like looking at Confederate flags in the trailer park and like looking Ooh. for these like oppressive signs of like economic rut really that's not like the most like accurate depiction of jackson mississippi <laughs> like yeah. i feel like they like were purposely trying to find like the shittiest parts of jackson to be like look how backwards mississippi is yeah I'm like oh come on guys like not all of jackson looked like the way it was portrayed and you didn't see a single shot of any other part of jackson and i feel like jackson's not that big you have to purposely be avoiding it to make it all look like a trailer park and I do think the movie's worth watching just to get to know Jerry Jones. Absolutely. Yeah, like, she's amazing. So fun. The next movie I saw I did not like. <laughs> this was also a broad theater. This is a queer coming-of-age thriller called Play the Devil. Uh, it's set in Trinidad, and it's following this like young boy as he's hit on by an older man, which I guess is kind of the plot of Call Me By Your Name, which I haven't seen yet. But I, it has that same vibe where it's like an older man getting into a relationship with a teen who's about to graduate uh, high school you know like he's on the verge of like adulthood in that way in this movie though it reminded me a lot of the jennifer lopez thriller the boy next door where like the roles are flipped but as soon as the passion is acted on where like this boy and this older man have sex together then all hell breaks loose it's like they're like punished for the transgression so the movie ended up being like kind of homophobic by accident Oops. Uh, the older character is this like rich man who's like coming in and hitting on this kid who has nothing and not really sure what to do about his future prospects because his grandmother wants him to be you know this like macho doctor and he wants to go off and be a queer artist like a photographer off at like some liberal arts school somewhere and he comes in and tries to fix all of their problems where he's not wanted like he wants to patch the roof of their house he wants to get him into different colleges and basically like groom him to be a mistress and as soon as the kid has sex with him, he feels immediately bad about it in a way that kind of grossed me out, especially once the guy started like hounding him and showing up places he wasn't wanted and like sort of pressuring him into doing things. And the movie escalates to a point where it has to end in like this act of violence to, for, to make the story work as a thriller. And it's just like really disappointing that it went there. All that being said, it's set in Trinidad and it looks fucking gorgeous. <laughs> like the, all the cultural stuff works really well, just not the story. Bummer. Yeah. I mean, half bummer? Here's the thing. The movie ends at Carnival, and there's this ritual called the Dance of the Blue Devils. And all the people in this less wealthy community paint their bodies in blue paint and just scream and dress up like devils and let out this like cathartic release of all the tension that you've been feeling the whole movie and it suddenly turns into this like beautiful art piece at the end and it's just like why was i wasting my time in this like vaguely homophobic story when i could just be like soaked in these visuals like the movie has this really interesting palette in its arsenal i just kind of wasted on this really disappointingly like old-fashioned story I, I don't know like they could have done that story but had it not take up all the plot like like suddenly last summer pretty much is the same thing except all of that thriller you're talking about happens before the movie starts and it's all of the aftermath you get like i probably could have watched that movie honestly a lot of it falls on the performance from the villain who is like the worst mustache twirling like villain character i've seen all year there's like no nuance to the situation like he is the bad guy and he's bad because he's pressuring this kid into gay sex 
And it's like, that's kind of fucked up. Yeah. Obviously, these stories happen, uh, and it's something we should all, like, think about and talk about, but, like, come on. Yeah, so, I don't know. Approach play the devil uh, with caution, <laughs> I would say. I was a little disappointed by it. It's, like, one of my least favorite experiences all festival. But it was followed by probably my second favorite movie I've seen all year. Oof. I haven't thought about what rank I have my movies in, but it's, it's up there. It's just, you know... I don't think it's my number two. It's up there, though. What, is it at least your favorite movie you saw besides The Florida Project, maybe? Ooh, let's see. Okay, wait. I gotta think about my... Yeah, I would say I would say it was my second favorite film of, of Film Fest by far, but... So, we're talking about Tom of Finland, which is a biopic about the queer erotica artist Tom of Finland, documenting the life of this guy from when he was like a soldier in the war sort of like cruising for anonymous gay sex with all these other soldiers who were like in hiding and then using drawings of men in leather sort of half dressed to hit on strangers and sort of like initiate cruising contacts without having to verbally make any advances out loud. And then eventually becoming this queer icon that launches an entire fetish and basically creates the entire kink of, like, a leather daddy. The most fascinating part of this movie to me is that it's not told in, like, a linear biopic fashion. Everything unfolds in these very complex ways where time and space all fold in on each other. The movie trusts you to follow it along as it jumps over consequences... It mirrors back on itself, like, it'll show him at his, like, most famous back to, like, when he was, like, living with his sister and, like, living in hiding, pretty much. And it turns into this very lyrical kind of romance that's halfway between William Freakin's Cruising and the recent Todd Haynes movie Carol, which are, like, a very unlikely combination of tones, but it's held together by classical music and disco. Uh, so these like weird disco dance parties with all these leather daddies dancing together. And it all sort of swells into this like one beautiful art piece. And I really can't speak more highly of this movie. No, it, it was shot with the same lush cinematography as Carol. Uh, so if you like Todd Haynes and you like Carol, go see this. At least for the cinematography, even if you're not particularly into the hyper-masculinity of leather daddy kink. Which, you know, isn't something I'm super into, but fuck, man, that was a good movie. Well, one of the complaints about the movie, and it, this movie has had a muted reception. Like, I'm speaking of it much higher than most critical responses. Yeah, been. no, nobody's talking about it, man. People are complaining that the subject is such a transgressive sex act. Tom of Finland draws all these, like, super macho, very explicit sexual cartoons, pretty much. And the movie itself is a little more stately and refined. And personally, I think that fits the subject only because Tom of Finland himself doesn't really come across... No, he was a small, slight man who, you know, was the type you'd see in a velvet smoking jacket more than you'd see him, you know, in a ball gag and, you know, assless chaps, like... And, like, most people's sexual fetishes are usually more extreme than their personalities. Not yeah, everybody, no, like, but... Like, this was his fantasy. He was drawing his own fantasies. He doesn't fantasize about himself or the way he currently was. He's fantasizing about, like, someone who is not there. And it's kind of cool, like, his 
fantasy character that he's like most attracted to, which is kind of based off of a guy he killed in battle. That's what they imply in the film. He, the only person he ever killed in battle was a Russian parachuter who was parachuting into Finland during that land squabble during World War II. And he turns the guy over and he's so struck by how beautiful this young man was that he killed. You know? Yeah, he kind of morphs him into this like leather daddy ideal. And that character sort of just like inserts himself in these situations where he's in real life and then this fantasy figure sort of like enters the room unremarked upon and just sort of like exchanges eye contact with him or grabs his crotch and looks at him. Uh, and it's like a... Just like a, like I said, lyrical piece. Like it's a very fluid, free flowing movie that is super confident in the fact that you're going to follow along as it weaves mm-hmm. in and out of these different stories. Uh, and it honestly is one of my favorite biopics, which is not like a genre I particularly love. But no, I'm not a big biopic person. But like Ed Wood and Kinsey are two that I really yeah. like rewatching, and I feel like this one's up there with those well, two. Because it's not just telling you like, a book report on who this guy was. Like, it, it doesn't just go, well, so Toko Lakasan, or however you pronounce his name, was born in Finland, and during World War II, when Russia tried to invade Finland, he fought in the battle, and then afterwards he got a job at an ad agency his sister worked at, and he lived with her, and his sister never got married, but he he met someone, he moved out, and then he was secretly drawing stuff. Like, it doesn't do that. It makes it into its own art piece, separate from the art of the person they're telling you the story about, which I think makes it a lot more interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure a linear version of the story would be as compelling to me, no. but the movie is more focused on creating these, like... I know this is kind of a cliche, because even right now, uh, every film of painting just closed. The YouTube channel just, like, shut its doors. But it, it has that every frame of painting kind of feeling of cinema where, like, the lighting and the framing and everything is just feels so intentional. Mm-hmm. And it's more of a visual piece than most biopics are. Yeah. Uh, and less of a, here's a Wikipedia rundown of what happened in this man's life. Yeah, like, because we can all go to Wikipedia and read about his life, like, and imagine it in our heads, hopefully, you know. But this this creates its own thing that lives and breathes, which is, is really nice that they had that, that, that confidence. You're right, and I, I highly doubt it's going to get, you know nominated for best screenplay or best foreign film or actually you know i think they might submit it for best foreign film it is being um, submitted yeah. okay that's cool uh i was really upset that south korea didn't submit the handmaiden a couple years back yeah. so but if it doesn't win anything else like i would really love to see it nominated for and you know maybe win uh best for best cinematography because it was so beautifully shot and honestly i would kind of be worried normally that the environment of a festival was kind of like elevating my experience like oh just the excitement of watching this movie really <laughs> dude the screening of this movie was total fucking dog shit it like, was such a shit show oh my god they started the movie probably three or four times as they were struggling with this issue where the subtitles were playing below the screen onto the wall and this is in a non-stadium theater so people are trying to look around each other we had a reposition to where I was in the front row, angled to the side, and you were about I, halfway back, but also against the wall. I sat at the halfway mark of the theater, but in the lower half, completely sideways in my chair with my back against the wall instead of the chair, so that I could angle my head back further to see the subtitles. Because the subtitles weren't on the actual screen, they sized it to where the film itself took up the entire screen and the subtitles were then on the wall below it. They stopped it a couple times because they tried to see if they could reposition the physical subtitles. They could not. Uh, so it took them a minute to realize that they could shrink the 
screen down and make the film just smaller to get the subtitles on there. But even then, it still wasn't enough to get the subtitles like off of people's heads. It was so bad. It was a deeply uncomfortable experience, and I still walked away thinking that was one of my favorite films of the year. Yeah, so. <laughs> it wasn't just us being stubborn, being like, we have to love this movie, because I felt like I had to love Mudbound, too, and I, I liked it, but I didn't love it, so. Right. And uh, we did go to one more major awards film, and this is probably the one movie that actually hasn't come out in a wide release, even by the time we're doing this podcast, because it's got such a slow platform release where it's going to several festivals, uh, this is the movie I, Tanya, where Margot Robbie plays the infamous figure skater Tanya Harding. It's going to get a huge Oscars push, basically, for her performance as this character, which is like a humanizing revision of her public persona, showing that she's not so much of an abuser as someone who's been abused her whole life, and the way that she was treated in the media for her infamous run-in with Nancy Kerrigan is actually just an extension of the abuse that's been leveled on her since she was born. Mostly perpetrated by uh, her mother, played by Allison Janney in the film, and her husband, played by Sebastian Bach? No, Sebastian Stan. Stan. Sebastian Bach is a hair metal singer? Yeah. Yeah. And also Johann Sebastian Bach was a famous composer. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, this one has the same director as Lars and the Real Girl. Its title is a play on I, Tina, which is the book Tina Turner wrote with Kurt Loder that was later turned into What's Love Got to Do With It. And much like What's Love Got to Do With It, this movie is seeped in domestic violence. You really do get a new perspective on Tanya Harding as a person, but the movie also has this pummeling rhythm of watching her get punched in the face, hit with guns, thrown around, raped just really brutalized from beginning to end. But it's intercut with these funny little uh, oral history interviews that her mother, her ex-husband, herself, her former bodyguard, pretty much anyone who's involved in the story at the time are giving. And these little interview segments where everybody gets their chance to tell their side of the story or the real objective truth are, are comedy bits. Uh, and they're, they're played almost word for word for the actual interviews that these real people gave. And they're kind of set up almost like uh, the office, like mockumentary style. It also kind of reminded me of Napoleon Dynamite a little bit. It's like, yeah. these guys are like out of date and out of fashion and they're like a little trashy and they say awkward things and they're like it, slightly it had, awkward yeah, it humor. Yeah, that, that like Hess style like humor going for it, definitely. Um, but hey, domestic violence too. You and I had different reactions. We did. I thought it was a great comedy. I My problem is, like, it's hypocritical in this weird way, where it's like, you need to stop gawking at this freak show. Like, what we did to this woman was horrible. And then the movie then jokes about them as, like, this, like, freak show of side characters. And then makes you feel bad, like, literally wagging the finger, like, you're a piece of shit for laughing at the joke I just told. Pretty much, yeah, no, they lecture you the whole time. She gives this speech where she is looking directly at the camera telling you that every time you bought a tabloid with her face on it, every time you told her to go to hell, you were putting her back through that abuse. And here we are, watching her go through it again and again and again, and laughing, because the director told us to laugh. That mix of tones did not work for me, and I think the movie's going to be divisive for that exact reason. Like, it is a very harsh fucking film, and it almost achieves this, like, 
uh, early Alexander Payne feel. Uh, the guy who did Election and Citizen Ruth, the like really fucked up Laura Dern abortion comedy, where that cruelty and that humor like are one and the same, and it's like making a point about how life kind of goes on after you're punched in the face. Like the scene doesn't end there, but. It's just too messy and not confident enough for me to like follow it along. And being asked to laugh immediately after a hit was very hard for me, especially if it's going to turn back around and make try to make me feel like shit. And I just kind of got more and more out of sync as the movie went along. And by the end, I just felt like, fuck you. I'm not following along anymore. Brandon doesn't like when people tell him what to do in movies <laughs> or at rap shows or anywhere. <laughs> He's not going to raise his hands in the air. He's not. Yeah, I, I can't wave them like I don't care because I care too much, you know? Exactly, so. <laughs> the more I, like, fell out of sync with the tone, like, the more I started nitpicking, like, why does this movie have a 70s soundtrack out of, like, Boogie Nights and Goodfellas when it's, like, a 90s story? Why does the CGI look so bad? I didn't think the CGI looked that bad, personally. They graphed her face onto, like, a, a body double. Yeah. And it's, like, very Uncanny Valley to me. Like, it looks monstrous. The thing is, she looked kind of monstrous when she was skating. Like, she always had this, like, really, like, tense smile plastered on her face in an attempt to look more feminine, like, more princessy, all those things that she wasn't. So she always had kind of this weird robotic look to me, so I don't know. That part just made sense that she kind of looked robotic. As, as negative as I'm being here, like, I really loved Margot Robbie's performance as Tanya Harding. Mm-hmm. She was excellent. She was so good. Allison Janney, equally as good as her abusive mother. An excellent performance in the film. I, that's all I can really say positive about it, though. And I, I do recognize that I might even be in the minority. It might not even be as divisive as I expected to be. But I do think that people are going in not fully warned about the heaviness of the domestic abuse in the film. Like, I was not prepared for how many times I have to watch this sympathetic character get punched in the face and dragged around by her hair and everything else. Like, it is a very harsh film in a way that I'm not sure the advertising is fully conveying yet. I mean, the advertising is saying this is a comedy. It's a dark comedy, but it's a comedy. Well, the last episode I just did, me and Brittany just talked about What's Love Got to Do With It, the Tina Turner movie that was based on Itina, and I had the same problem there, too. Like, the the violence felt very exploitative. So this might all just be a total, like... My problem. Like, this I mean, might be all too personal for if, me. If this film gave her a chance to retell her story and this is the way that she wanted it retold, I feel like we just kind of have to go along with that. Yeah, that's what her life was like. Yes, she got punched in the face and raped and bad things happened to her, but she also got to skate. And not that, you know, that makes up for the other things by any means, but this is like the version of the story she wanted us to know. That yes, those things happened to her. I was a kid when that happened and... I thought she was a monster. I thought that she was this this person who who despised her competitor and wanted to sabotage her because she herself wasn't that great a skater. And this film gave me a chance to like really see what she was up against and what her true role in it was. I, I do think it works very well at humanizing somebody who's often de- demonized by default. Yeah, like the number of jokes that have been told about her. Like, yeah. Fuck. But it was more of like the, the way it alternates between humor and abuse. Like, I just couldn't follow along with that rhythm. I will say the first third of the movie is far stronger. Like, Oh, hell yeah. Like, her, like, backstory, like, where she was as a kid and, like what her life was like when she was training and trying to come up and become famous, that part was the strongest part. It's 
when Sebastian Stan comes on the the scene as her her boyfriend then husband and then ex-husband that really kind of drags it down but I mean not because of his acting his acting's really good he plays a guy who got away with abuse vicious abuse for years because he is so charming for like a good 40 minutes into his character he is just so charming even after he starts beating her like you still like him it's only over time that he becomes less and less tolerable as a character <laughs> Yeah, he is playing a naturally cheesy person, so it kind of makes sense that that Jared has cheesy person humor would seep in. But yeah, it is a it is a very harsh clash of tones. And I might have even been a little defensive too because the movie came out when we saw it when the Harvey Weinstein scandal was like very fresh. I think it was like the same week, and the movie opens with a Mirror Max logo, and the entire theater had this very yeah, uncomfortable we, laughter. We all went, yeah. And that made me very defensive off the cuff. And then the fact that the movie like played into that stuff, like maybe I was just not in the right mind frame. But I've seen a very similar story told before in that movie The Bronze a few years ago, mm-hmm. which is about a super crass, working class Olympian who is, is cruel to everyone around her and a bully and still humanized. And I appreciated that movie a lot. Uh, I thought The Bronze was a hilarious dark comedy, but it's definitely much sillier and less brutal than this one is. So, like I said, it might just be a personal bias with this kind of stuff being depicted on screen ever. This might be my, like, Roger Ebert moment, where, like, this kind of, like, violence is something I have a hard time dealing with when it's depicted on screen so brutally and so casually. I mean, there's a lot of times where violence, especially sexual violence, is a huge turnoff for me, and it'll, it'll completely turn me off from a movie. I'm like, nope, done with the movie. But for some reason, it worked for me in this. Like... I think it would have been a worse movie if they had cut any of that out. Uh, so I think it had to be there. Um, so yeah, I just disagree with you on this one. <laughs> That's fine. I liked it. It wasn't It wasn't like my favorite thing I've seen all year or anything, but I, I liked it a lot as a comedy. And I, again, I think that first third, the first act was really, really strong. I totally agree with that. I was actually on the hook for the majority of the first act. And then when she gets married, things take a very sharp turn. And the movie is kind of unwieldy in that way. Like from minute to minute, it's aiming for a bunch of different tones and styles that uh, sort of change on a whim, but in a way that's natural to the story if you can hold on to that Bronco for the whole time. And I mean, they had a lot on their plate because they they have two movies going on at the same time, essentially. They had these real-life interviews with actors uh, reportraying these spoken word interviews, and then they also have the reenactment, essentially, of what happened according to each person. So each person that they're interviewing gets a few moments of the film for their, like, reenactment. It's a huge pile of unreliable narrators. Yeah. Yeah. And each narrator gets to control what we're looking at for a few minutes at a time. So, I mean, I feel like, you know, as a result, they had, like, five scripts they were working with all layered on top of each other. And as unpleasant as I found this one and What's Love Got to Do With It, I do recognize that there is a value to saying, like, when this kind of violence happens... It's treated like a regular thing and life just goes on. Yeah, and no, the moment it, it, doesn't end as soon as you get punched in the face. Like no. the, the beats go on after that. Uh, I, I do recognize that there is a value there, uh, even if I found them both deeply unpleasant. Well, I think, I think it needed to be brutal because otherwise we do feel it's normal. It's like, oh yeah, her husband knocked her out, but that's no excuse for what she did. And it's like, we have to get you past that point. We have to show you how brutal it was. You don't go, oh... Oh, okay, maybe I maybe I, I did judge her too harshly. Like, yeah. They had to really, really make it brutal to get us past the years of jokes we've heard about her. 
It's. It, I think it is going to be a divisive picture. If not, I'm okay with being the minority there. Yeah. You don't have to love everything. You don't I, have to love everything. I'm okay not loving this one. <laughs> it's, it's. It's a. Uh, it's a respectable movie for how bold it is. I can say that much at least. Yeah. It's going to be a good Oscar comedy. It'll be a good Oscar conversation, I think. Well, I did make a quick like tweet uh, roundup of like the five best movies I saw at the festival, and the top two, The Florida Project and Tom of Finland are also my two favorite movies I've seen all year. So that's pretty great. Like, I feel like the festival is at least worthwhile there. Yeah. Uh, even though we're going to see both of those movies again. Uh, well, we already saw the Ford Project again. We're we going did. to see Tom of Finland a second time. <laughs> just to sort of solidify its value outside the festival environment. We will We will give you guys an update if we suddenly decide we don't like Tom of Finland after seeing it a second time with proper subtitles. Uh, the other three standouts for me were She's Allergic to Cats... Uh, Love and Saucers and Damascene. I think those are all really solid films. And we also obviously really liked OK Call Me Back as like the best short we saw at the festival. Is there anything else that you really want to shout out as like a standout? Uh, you know, I, I'm still thinking about Young and Innocent a lot. That was the an impressionistic dream pop version of the story of Psycho. Weird little film. I, I think a lot about the imagery of that one. I think that was like a good experience to have too because I'm not sure if that one's actually going to get out no. to a wider audience. It's kind of like Cheerleader uh, last year. Oh, I loved Cheerleader. I loved Cheerleader and it never, it's never played. I feel like she's allergic to cats is uh, this year's uh, Are We Not Cats? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of parallels. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And you know, if you do go to these festivals, like we did see like three major pictures here, but like those are the movies you need to seek out. Like Are We Not Cats and Cheerleaders like really did feel like two of the best movies I saw all last year and no one else got to see them outside no. that festival and a few other smaller circuits like that. So, so those films just like kind of don't exist now. No one saw them for us to talk about them with. Yeah, and that is really alienating. Like, when you have a strong experience with a smaller film, and you either have to wait months for the rest of the world to see it, or the rest of the world never sees it, so who do you talk to? I don't know. Go out and see some festival releases in your city. Like, this is a very exhausting experience. It was It was a little much for me. I think we went to see too many this time, but I don't know. It's also very rewarding, too. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm glad when it's over and, like, oh, I saw this and this and this. This is all really great. Well, yeah, we get, to, we get to have this list. And this <laughs> list is kind of like our dragon gold. We get to, like, be like, oh, look how big my pile is this year. Woo! Well, this has been a longer episode than usual. Uh, we will have one more this year. Also co-hosted by Peter from the We Love to Watch podcast. And after that, of course, early January, we'll do our huge roundup of all our favorite movies of 2017. And of course, that one's going to be another giant behemoth. But oh, I promise I promise that we'll start doing more regular like length episodes and more easily digestible conversations coming your way. And we'll see y'all in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye.